0: latest on the alleged
1: plan to assassinate Donald Trump. This man, grabbed by police at a packed rally in Las Vegas, and ABC's Pierre Thomas has new details in Washington.
2: Weighing up the mood of conservative
3: America in a gun show in West Virginia, among the rifle racks and ammunition, there's anger
4: and
5: dark
3: talk of
4: looming conflict. Senator
5: Rand was allegedly
6: assaulted at his
4: We are witnessing a radicalization of libertarians all across the
5: country.
6: Dear viewers, we have just received a word that Libertarian Death Squad are taking over We have got to, to
5: take our country back.
1: He also, also worries that Civil War could be on the way back. He also worries that
3: Civil War could be on the way back.
5: Her
7: son, 19-year-old Horace Lorenzo Anderson, was shot and killed inside the then-cop-free zone that persisted for weeks on Capitol Hill.
6: Was Over of Afghanistan, now inevitable. No, it is not. It's taken just four weeks for that statement to be proved so um, spectacularly and alarmingly wrong. Corrected. Reality, thousands of miles away, is now on.
5: China
1: urging its citizens not to travel abroad as it struggles to contain the virus.
6: We will be
8: standing up I'm Christmas still Island, still Island, still
0: Island as a quarantine. Joe Brand and I agree.
5: That's hey, by, by the way, where are you in a known band from entering the time country? Time
9: Christmas Island today drywall. declared oh, yeah. that the yeah. coronavirus Name presents three things that don't hang themselves. That's what the American people think.
7: Saying to an old high school teacher I had, Miss Hires, "Fuck you, you Common Core teaching bitch. Tall, gangly ass, jawline so sharp you could carve a piece of glass out of it. Transvestite looking bitch. Ye head ass, motherfucking bitch looking like a fucking doo doo head. You ain't my dad looking ass bitch. She taught us the Crucible, right? The scary witch hunt." Well, it's a parable, right? Like, it's all about the Red Scare and the communist witch hunt led by Joe McCarthy. Two things. Joe McCarthy was entirely right. Second, Joe McCarthy did not have a single trial on Hollywood's communist infestation. His focus was solely on investigating overall communist affiliates in America and to decide whether or not or did find out whether or not that the people who were communists in America were communists because they chose to be, or if it was because of external forces outside of the US coercing people to become communists. He didn't care if you were a communist in America, he cared if you were a communist from outside of America who infiltrated America. That was his concern. With this episode of Inside Four Walls, I hope to vindicate and show what's come out recently about our good friend and quite frankly. National hero, Joe McCarthy, and why Hollywood has always been a communistic shit show. Let's begin. Welcome to Inside Four Walls. I'm your NCAP host, James Madison, and today, let's do a deep dive. We begin today by reading an article titled Married to Moscow How the USSR Co opted Communist Parties in the West and then Lost them by Russia Beyond. This was published January 31st, 2018, by Oleg Yugurov in the History Column. Prompting the ideals of equality and freedom on one hand, but absolutely loyal to Moscow on the other, Western Communist parties were often caught in the crossfire an annoyance and embarrassment to their own government. Here is a story of how the Soviet leaders tried to control and manipulate their allies beyond enemy lines, in three Western countries, one, the U.S. When the USSR collapsed in 1991, leaders of the U.S. Communist Party, the CPUSA, were devastated and shocked. Quite frankly, it's a day I celebrate every year. I have a little bit of a shot of I have a shot of uh, vodka every day, or every day of that one day in the year. <laughs> I hate fucking vodka. It's a shit drink during its zone. I never thought of anybody can drink that shit straight. Maybe I'm just pathetic. Anyway, let's continue. Their entire world was turned upside down. Quote, Up until the time the Soviet Union fell apart, the CPUSA never made a single criticism of anything the Soviet leaders did or said, wrote a leftist publicist, publicist Pete Brown. And he was right. <laughs> Paradoxically, one of Marxism, Marxism's most hardline parties. In their 2014 constitution, the CPUSA still pledges allegiance to Marx, Engels, and Lenin. Was born in in born in capitalism's main bastion, the American Communists gained popularity during the Great Depression when inequality rose drastically, and the CPUSA supported trade unions and the fight for workers' rights. Workers unite. (sighs) The proletarian Revolution never made it to the American shores. However, as Jonathan Lethem wrote in his novel, Dissident Gardens, after the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev published his secret speech in 1956 denouncing Joseph Stalin's bloody purges. Quote, the american communists turned into the living dead after these revelations and representations of pro-stalin cpusa was comprised in the eyes of was comprised in the eyes of most americans add to this america's anti-communist hysteria there we go at the start of the cold war plus the constant spy scandals connected with connected with communists And you'll understand that the course of events in the 1950s undermined the communist cause in the U.S. Nevertheless, though, they continued their struggle during anti-war and civil rights protests throughout the 1960s and 80s. Still, the Soviets continued to back the CPUSA. There is at least one document proving that Gus Hall CPUSA's General Secretary from 1959 to 2000, old motherfucker, received considerable sums of money from Moscow. Wait, 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 comrade, comrade, you claim to hate capitalism, but you got paid by a government and accepted funds and payment to sell out your own country. You would say for the right price you sold out America. Sort of a capitalistic-esque endeavor, comrade. The world today barely remembers Eugene Freed, or Eugene Fried, Norm De Geste, or Clement, as he went by, or Michael Fishtich, Jean Jerome. These two communists from East Europe were the agents of Comintern, the Communist International Moscow Control Organization, and pulled the strings of the French Communist Party, the PC, or PFC, and its long term leader, Maurice Thorez. Quote, His task was to make sure that the orders from Moscow were executed thoroughly, said French writer Anne Kling, describing Fried as the man in shadows. Of the PFC, he succeeded Maurice Thorez's public position faithfully and followed each of Stalin's twists and turns. In 1939, despite his critique of Nazism, Thorez opposed the war against Hitler when the USSR and Germany signed the Non Aggression Pact. This is when Hitler and Stalin were best friends. And to give America a little bit of shit, we too called him Uncle Stalin for a brief period of time, but we were one of the first countries to be like, ooh, no, this guy's kind of a monster. Anyway, into the article. Du-du-du-du-du, aggression pact. But when Hitler attacked the USSR and the PFC declared war against the Nazis and joined the resistance, playing the glorious role in it, Flores, however, stayed in Moscow throughout the war like a fucking coward after the war with Thorez in charge of the PFC, kept the Stalinists aligned. French communists remained loyal to Moscow, with Michael Fintich Fried was killed by the Nazis, secretly acting as the middleman between the USSR and the PFC until the 1970s. Only in the 1990s, after the USSR collapsed, the French communist shifted to the less doctoral Euro-communism. Two. Or I should say three. Do I really care about Italy? Mm, I'm only here to talk about America. I don't give a fuck about Italy. I have a bunch of things ready. This next article is from SF Gate. This is by Stefan Schwartz, Chronicle staff writer. Published July 26, 1996. Soviet spies cast a wide net in SF. Decoded messages reveal activities of the KGB in the 1940s. See, I dig up the good shit for y'all. You better be fucking grateful. Let's continue a release of more than 800 messages decoded by the national security agency the nsa old friends of ours right reveals of an extensive and lethal variety of soviet spy activities in the bay area that's california from 1941 to 1946 mind you california is where <laughs> joe mccarthy was a sender of and operated these messages distributed last week by the NSA's Center for Cryptological History, were coded by Soviet agents and telegraphed from San Francisco, Mexico City, and New York and Washington to Moscow and vice versa. At the same time, they were surreptitiously Or, surreptitiously... Ah, God, I I cannot form words tonight. At the same time, they were surreptitiously... Ah, fuck, you know what I'm trying to say. Surreptitiously. Recorded by American authorities. They were later deciphered by American military experts using purely intellectual methods of code-breaking. The deciphering project was known as Venona, a meaning, a meaningless cover name. Among the legal activities in the Bay Area that Soviet agents engaged in were kidnapping Russians, or kidnapping Russians hiding here and sending them back to the Soviet Union, where they faced a certain death and torture, receiving and assassinating, Clandestine Russian agents with fake American identities spying on American officials. Sorry, let me, I misread that. Receiving and assisting clandestine Russian agents with fake American identities spying on American officials and recruiting communists in California for intelligence work. A KGB, oh, that's a Russian word, residentura, residentura, or office was established in San Francisco in December of 1941. Remember that date, boys. Shortly after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, it was headed by Grigory Makhanov Chavitsky. I'm not going to pronounce that name right. Previously, the person, the personal secretary of Nataliza Korops- Koropsukaya. Again, these are Russian names. Widow of Russian Communist Party founder Vladimir Lenin. According to a recent article in the Moscow Magazine. I actually have an article from them up there. Uh, Kainofits... Of was referred to in the KGB messages as Charon or Charon the name of the boatwoman who ferries the dead to hell across the river styx in the classical mythology in a usage that seems as witty as it is as it was intellectual san francisco was ir- invariably called Babylon. Russians called San Francisco Babylon. Kleinefitz, I, I don't know if I have that right. Kleinefitz presided over a wide range of intelligence activities, but a greater deal of his time, that's a he, of his time was spent watching Russian ships and trying to prevent their sailors from fleeing. The Soviets were extremely patient in searching for such defectors. One sailor named Chizikov was hunted for four years before before he was caught in 1944, interrogated and taken back to Russia. This next part of the article is called Shipped to Vladzovska. In the... In the Pyogant case, a female second mate of the ship called the Skyv or P S K O V Skyv. Oh, this is a big Russian name. Fuck me. I'll try it out. Yellow Zarvata Mitrovkana Vana Kosova No way to get in that right. Left the ship in Portland. Oh, it's always in Portland, isn't it? Left the ship in Portland on February 9th, 1944, and went into hiding. Casanova was tracked to San Francisco, where she reportedly married a cab driver. Her case was closed when the KGB agent in San Francisco told Moscow on November 4th, 1945, quote, the traitor to the fatherland. Kenzanova was shipped to Vladiskova, or Vladivostoka these are Russian names on the tanker Belgorod. Some of the sailors who fled Russia who fled from Russian ships and sailed on American vessels where they were still hunted by Kainovitz and his associates. Kind of it also developed a close relationship with a fabled local communist Isaac Pop Fulkoff. Sounds like a singer. Who had come to San Francisco in nineteen oh four at age twenty four and ran the embroidery ran an embroidery business. Fulkoff was a founder of the Californian Communist Party. California Communist Party, my bad. And had been a delegate. Oh, had been a delegate to the founding Congress of the Communist International in Moscow in 1919. In a comical incident, Kleinefits complained to Moscow of that Folkov remembered the password to be used in meeting with secret agents, but had forgotten the conditions for the meeting. How to meet, how to meet them and when. Kleinefitz frequently met with Fulkoff to develop inf- to develop information and recruit intelligence workers among American communists, who were referred to as compatriots or fellow countrymen. In the message, Harrison George, a former member of the ultra radical industrial workers of the world who became a communist editor of the local newspapers people's world was mentioned in 1940 in a 1943 message during a discussion during a discussion of James Walter Miller a censor of wartime recruiting as a spy and given the code name the in a sensational message to Moscow of Fitz reported that Miller's colleagues in the censorship office, which was, uh, I believe the censorship office was actually set up by FDR and Woodrow Wilson to tell news agencies what they can and cannot talk about and of the press. I might be mistaken, though. In the office of censorship, had discovered that surface mail sent by Russia agents in San Francisco to Moscow included invisible writing. Kleinefitz asked Moscow to check whether such practices had been ordered by Russian naval intelligence to be used in Babylon, which refers to San Francisco, by the way. Showing the obscurity of the matters in which the KGB took an interest, the same message described... Excuse me, sorry. Described an attempt to find out why why Ukraine living in the town of... Rustov named Kravchenko. Kravchenko? Had thirty-three dollars in the bank in a Bank of America account in San Francisco. Harry Bridges mentioned that's a great name, Harry Bridges. Harry Bridges mentioned. Another local figure who appears in the telegraph traffic. Although the reference is fragmentary and unclear, is Harry Bridges a longtime pro-Soviet head of the International Long Shoresman of Warehousemen's Union. But kind of fits, and his personal cast and his personnel cast a wide net. They used Norwegian Council in San Francisco in their search for Russian sailors and a series of messages. Reminiscent of a James Bond novel described the measures by secret Soviet agents to assist an Australian-born woman who held Soviet citizenship in a clandestine entry into the United States. The woman, Edna Patterson, which is an alias, had a fake American identity fabricated by the Russian military intelligence. She landed from a Russian ship in San Francisco in 1943. The same time the Red Scare was going on, everybody was, and your teachers will now tell you that there were no Russians coming in into America, and McCarthyism was a wicked witch hunt with no proof. Yeah, they all read The Crucible, and Arthur Miller's goofy ass. Also, I want to take a moment to just address, Marilyn Monroe was married to Arthur Miller the same time she was shacking an American president. Just a food for thought. Anyway, she landed from a Russian ship in San Francisco in 1943 and remained here undetected until she left in 1956, a little over 10 years. Gregory kind of, it's replaced in June 1944 by another KGB officer, Gregory Kasparov, according to the Hoover Institution of Scholar uh, Robert Conquest. Conquest? Yeah, Conquest. Kinsofits was purged during Stalin's last period of repressive or last period of repression in which high ranking Soviet Jews were targeted but survived until at least the 1950s. This article was again written by Stefan Schwartz Chronicle Staffer. And moving on, I want to start talking about certain people. Now, in Hollywood, back during the Red Scare, there was a thing called the Hollywood Blacklist. There was more than seven people, but there were seven people who stand out very specifically in this list. The first person being Dalton Trombo. Now, I have an article here from History. And let's begin. This article is put together by Evan Anders, Andrews. sorry. <clears throat> Updated October eighteenth, 2019. Originally published in July eleventh, 2016. Ooh, okay. Okay, so I want to... It was 10 people, by the way. This article goes over the main seven. I want to point out something. There's a big gap between 2016 and 2019. This could have gone woke. This could have gone more biased in a political sense. We don't know. Let's begin the article. Seven artists whose careers were almost derailed by the Hollywood blacklist. From Oscar-winning scriptwriters to hard-boiled detective novelist. The first one is Dalton Trombo. The Blacklist era kicked off in 1947, when famed screenwriter Dalton Trombo was actually a movie, a George Clooney movie called Trombo, and it's an absolute piece of commie propaganda, written by an absolute apologist, TDR, or TDS sufferer named George fucking Clooney. Mind you, the little thing about George Clooney, the same guy who was Roseanne Barr's best friend, but when she cracked a joke and then came out as pro-Trump, threw her under the bus like a high school prom night dumpster baby gets thrown into the dumpster behind the 7-Eleven, two blocks from the fucking school. Let's get back into the article. The Blacklist era kicked off in 1947 when famed screenwriter Dalton Trombo and several other filmmakers known as the Hollywood Ten were called before the House Un American Activities Committee, the H U A C, and asked a now famous question, quote, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? <laughs> Trombo had indeed been a party member at one time. But like the rest of the Big Ten, era, like the rest of the 10 era, god damn it, sorry, like the rest of the 10, I've been watching basketball, I'm rewatching Big top 10 highlights or the big 10 highlights. My bad. <clears throat> Trombo had indeed been a member of the party at one time, but like the rest of the 10, he refused to answer and even question the legitimacy of the HUAC in his testimony. As a result, he was charged with contempt of Congress, blacklisted by Hollywood studios and sentenced to a year in a federal prison Following his release, Trumbo was forced to write under a pseudonym as he sells his scripts on the black market. Sorry about that. He secretly planned several classic screen. Sorry, he secretly penned several classic screen pay- plays during the nineteen fifties, including quote, "Gun Crazy" and quote. The Brave One. Both of these are very much... Watch them. old spaghetti westerns. And they are very much propagandist bullshit. <clears throat> and his work even won two Academy Awards. Neither of which he was able to collect. Trumbo finally broke free of the blacklist in 1960 after director Otto Primiger and actor Kirk Douglas announced that he would receive or he would receive writing credits for the films Exodus and Spartacus. He later resumed his career in Hollywood, but it wasn't until 2011 that the that the Writers Guild of America finally credited him the Oscar winning script for 1953 Roman Holiday. Now we move on to the second person in this list of six people. Pete Seeger. This guy was actually a singer, songwriter. There's a little video here. Let's see what this is. Not functioning is what that is. Neat history. Get your shit together. Pete Seeger is best known. Why is this big pop up down here? Go away. Oh, yeah. I move on to Orson Welles. I got a little clip play for you of Orson Welles in a minute. This fucking sellout. Pete Seeger is best known as a founding member of the folk outfit, the Weavers, but he was also a political radical who claimed a membership in the Communist Party as as a young man. In the 1940s and 50s, socially conscious singer-songwriter was investigated by the FBI and later blacklisted after his name appeared in the Red Channels, an influential pamphlet that listed suspected communists in the entertainment industry. We need that to come back, by the way. Seeger was barred from performing on television, and the Weavers broke up in 1952 after they lost their recording contract. Three years later, Seeger was called to testify before the HUAC while he refused to invoke his Fifth Amendment right to not witness against himself. He announced that he was not, or he was, quote, not going to answer any questions as to his associations, my polit... Or, sorry, Quote, not going to answer any question as to my associations, my philosophical or religious beliefs, or my political beliefs, or how I voted in any election, or any of these private affairs. I think these are very improper questions for any American to be asked. End quote. Seeger's defiant, defense saw, sorry, Seeger's defiant saw him charged with ten counts of contempt of Congress and sentenced to a year in prison. The indictment was later overturned, but he remains blackballed from television until 1968. <sighs> now, Ilya Kazan is someone I'm going to be going into much later on in this episode, but Orson Welles has some very choice words. Oh, this man who saw the error of his ways and said communism is a failure. And denounced his membership with the party, and then testified against his colleagues. I also will be playing a clip of that for you today. <sighs> Number three on the list is Orson Welles. You probably know him. Uh, "War of the Worlds" is his work, by the way. Into the article, at the same time that director, right at the same time that director, screenwriter, and actor Orson Welles was making groundbreaking films and radio programs. He was also under investigation by the FBI as a potential communist and political subverse. Or, yeah. Wells was targeted in part because of his progressive political stances. But the suspicions only grew after the release of his classic 1941 film, Citizen Kane whose main character served as a thinly veiled reference to the anti-communist news mogul William Rudolph Hearst. Well, the evidence before us leads inevitably to the conclusion that the film Citizen Kane is nothing more than an extension of the Communist Party's campaign to smear one of its most effective and consistent opponents in the United States. One FBI report read, while the Bureau never found evidence of Wells, of Wells was himself a Communist Party member, it still added him to the index of people believed to be a threat to national security. His name would later appear in the 1950s Red Channels pamphlet. But by then, he had already entered a long-prolonged self-imposed isolation in Europe. Number four, Lena Horn. Not the cutest, but she kind of looks like a who out of who villa Anyway... During the 1940s, Lena Horne's good looks and silky singer voice made her one of of the first African-American stars on the stage and screen. She still ran against the institutional racism, however, and racism, however, and... Her frustrations eventually drove her to join up with a variety of activist groups, many of which were populated by political radicals and the communists. Though never a party member herself, Horn was found guilty by association and blacklisted after her name appeared in the Red Channels in the 1950s. Unable to work in television or film, she spent the next few years touring as a nightclub and or cabaret singer, Sorry. She also fought to clear her name by publicly repudiating communism and undertaking a letter-writing campaign to prompt journalists and entertainment figures. The plan worked. Horn's reputation was slowly reestablished and rehabilitated, and by the late 1950s, she was once again appearing on television variety shows and recording hit records. Despite her brush with the blacklist, she remained a political activist and later took part in the civil rights protests in the 1960s. Now, this is an interesting one right here. Charlie Chaplin. He also was an espionage agent that we sent to Nazi Germany to spy on Hitler, along with Houdini. Hey, I'll go into that. Let me know in the comments if you want me to go into the list of people at 19, in World War I and World War II who were big-time celebrities, including Shirley Temple, we used as espionage agents. I will happily go into that. <clears throat> into the article. And though I'm never a member of the Communist Party, clearly, silent screen icon Charlie Chaplin drew the ire of the government for his sub- subversive films and support of leftist political causes. The Little Tramp creator screwed or skewered the capitalist and in industry. Get ahead of myself. The Little Tramp creator skewered the capitalist, and industrial society with movies such as Modern Times, The Great Dictator. The Great Dictator was a criticism of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was a socialist. You know, let me prove something real quick. What was the name of the National German Germans Worker Party?
6: Nationalsozialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartei. According to Wikipedia, the Nazi party, officially the National Socialist German Workers' Party, German, Nationalsozialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, or NSDAP, was a far-right political party in Germany oh, active between 1920 off. and 1945 that created and supported the ideology of Nazism.
7: What side of the political compass is socialism? Hmm. is socialism a left political
6: according to wikipedia while communism and socialism are usually regarded internationally as being on the left conservatism and reactionism are generally regarded as being on the right
7: don't know what that last part had to do with anything but you heard the bitch. she said that socialisms were far right the first time and then she says they're left the second time thanks google you're ever so consistent. Why don't you just butt fuck Facebook and create a company that will take over the entire world and internet as a whole? You're already halfway there. Just let that Hindi fuck take like his dick and Zuckerberg and we'll have a baby that'll destroy the universe. You can create Skynet. Actually, I think Skynet already exists. I think it's actually a real thing. Wait, let me just... I'm curious now. Is Skynet a real thing?
6: According to Wikipedia, Skynet is a fictional artificial neural network-based conscious group mind and artificial general superintelligence system that serves as the antagonistic force of the Terminator franchise.
7: And you scroll down into that question and it goes, what is the real Skynet? Skynet is a program by the U.S. National Security Agency, the NSA, Uh uh-oh, that performs machine learning analysis and communications data to extract information about possible terror suspects. The tool they used to identify targets such as Al-Qaeda cruisers and who move between GSM cellular networks. It's kind of just real. But I think I'm pretty sure that was a real thing. Back into the article. The Great, the great Dictator and Monsieur Vodax. And was later denounced as a communist sympathize, simp, uh, bleh, sympathizer after he donated money to the defense fund for Dalton Trombo. Again, Dalton Trombo was falsely accused and blacklisted. And again, watch that bullshit George Clooney movie for more details. Donated money to the defense fund for Dalton Trombo and the Hollywood 10. The FBI, meanwhile, compiled a file on Chaplin. That was over 2,000 pages long. The tension finally came to a head in the 19 in 1952 when Chaplin, a British national, was denied re was denied a re-entry visa to the United States after a trip abroad. Told he'd need to testify to his quote, moral worth before he could regain the permit. The director-actor instead cut ties with America and spent the rest of his career working in Europe, save for the nineteen seventies trip to collect a honorary Oscar. Chaplin never set foot in the United States again. Six, Lee Grant. In nineteen fifty one, just a few weeks after the release of her first Hollywood film, quote Detective Story, actress Lee Grant criticized the HUAC investigations in a speech at the funeral of blacklisted actor, J. Edward Bromberg. While Grant had never been an active communist or active in communist politics, her seemingly benign remarks were soon made public, earning her a place in the industry blacklist. She was later called before the HUAC and asked to go out to out her own husband as a communist, but pled the fifth and refused to answer the committee's questions, except for occasional bit parts. Grant was effectively banned from appearing in movies and television for the next 12 years. Following her removal from the blacklist in the 1960s, she made a famous return to the silver screen and garnered three different Oscar nominations for acting and winning once for the 1975 film Shampoo. And Deshel Hamat is the seventh on this list. (sighs) The man who helped create hard-boiled fiction with detective novels such as The First Maltese Falcon and The Thin Man was also avowed, was an avowed anti-fascist and communist party member. In 1951, While serving as a trustee of the leftist civil rights Congress, Hammett was summoned to the federal court and asked to testify about contributors to the group's bail fund. When he had pled the fifth and refused to name names, he was found in contempt of court and sentenced to six months in jail. Two, Two years later, he was called before Joseph McCarthy's Senate and... Joseph... McCarthy's Senate uh, Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations and questioned about his ties to the com- ties to communism, but again he refused to he uh, refused to cooperate. By then, Hammett's run-ins with the government had won him a place on the entertainment industry's blacklist. Copies of his books were even briefly removed from several states, several State Department libraries overseas. After suffering a heart attack in, the 19, in 1955, he withdrew from the library, from the literary world, and lived in obscurity until his death. Fact check this. Fact check. We strive for accuracy and fairness, but if you see something... Oh, yeah. I want to know... I want to know what you changed. You said this thing was updated and edited in 2009, and 2019, despite this being originally released in 2016. I want to know what was changed. Anyway, this article, again, was by Evan Andrews, and this is on History.com, the History Channel's website, by the way. Let me play to you just a little clip of what I was saying about Orson Welles.
3: I was looking
4: for uh, a
7: way to. Fuck off, DoorDash.
5: So I figured I'd give it a shot.
0: any Cazon said that it was not easy in America to raise funds to make films on Puerto Rican and In that case, it was not easy to find money
8: to make such a film. Chair, yeah, mademoiselle, you have chosen the
3: wrong meter en scène. Because. Ilya Kazan is a traitor. He is a man who sold to McCarthy all of his companions at a time when he could continue to work in New York at a high salary. And having sold all of his people to McCarthy, he then made a film called On the Waterfront, which was a celebration of the informer.
6: Et, et après avoir vendu tous ses amis
10: à McCarthy, il a fait un film qui s'appelle Sur les quais et qui est une glorification du mouchard.
3: And therefore, no question which uses him as an example can be answered by me. Et par conséquent, toute question qui se sert de son nom comme exemple ne
10: pourra trouver de réponse auprès de moi. To add, I have
9: to add that he is a very good director. que c'est un excellent
7: And that's that clip. Now, I want to play to you some of the testimonies held at the H.A.U.C. trials. This interview right here is the testimony of Paul Robinson before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, June 12th, 1956.
3: Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Oh, please, please,
1: please.
7: Please answer, will you, Mr. Robson? What is the
1: Communist Party? What do you mean by that? Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Would you like to come to the ballot box when I vote and take off the ballot and see? Mr. Chairman, I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question.
3: You are directed to answer the question.
1: I invoke the Fifth Amendment and forget it. I
3: respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question, whether if he gave us a truthful answer, he would be supplying information which might be used against him in a criminal proceeding. You are directed to
1: answer, Mr. Rochen. In the first place, wherever I've been in the world, the first to die in the struggle against fascism were the communists. I laid many wreaths upon the graves of communists. That is not criminal. Chief Justice Warren has been very clear that the Fifth Amendment does not have anything to do with the influence of criminality. And I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Have you ever been known under the name of John Thomas? Oh, please, does somebody here want me to put up a perjury someplace? John Thomas, my name is Paul Robeson. And anything i have to say i have said in public all over the world and that is why i'm here today mr chairman i ask that you to direct the witness to answer the question
8: he's making his i ask you to
3: affirm or deny the fact that your communist party name was I john thomas the fifth amendment this is ridiculous. the witness talks very loud when he makes a speech but when he it looks the fifth amendment
1: i can't hear him i have medals for diction i can talk Loud. will you talk a little louder i invoke the fifth amendment loudly
3: sir who are mr and mrs vladimir i McKeev? invoke
1: the fifth amendment do you know a manning
3: johnson i invoke the fifth amendment do you know gregory kaifetz i invoke the fifth
1: amendment do you know a max juergen i invoke the fifth amendment max juergen why don't you have these people here to be cross-examined could i ask whether this is legal this is not only legal but usual by unanimous vote, this committee has been instructed to
3: perform this very distasteful task. To whom am I talking? You're speaking of the chairman of the committee.
1: Mr. Walter? Yes. The Pennsylvania Walter?
3: That is right. Representative
1: of the steel workers? That is right. And the coal mining workers? That is right. Not United States steel, by any chance. A great patriot. That is right. You are the author of the bills that are going to keep all kinds of decent people out of the country. No, only your kind. The colored people like myself? And you would let in the Teutonic Anglo-Saxon stock.
3: We are trying to make it easier to get rid of your kind, too. You don't want any colored people to come in. Could I be allowed to read from my statement? Will here? you just tell this committee, please, while under oath, Mr. Robson, the communists who participated in the preparation of that statement?
1: Oh, please. The reason I'm here today, from the mouth of the State Department itself, is... I should not be allowed to travel because i have struggled for the independence of the colonial peoples of africa the other reason i'm here today again from the state department and from the record of the court of appeals is that when i am abroad i speak out against injustices against the Negro people in this land that is why i'm here i'm not being tried for whether i'm a communist i'm being tried for fighting for the rights of my people. We're still second-class citizens in this country, in this United States of America. My mother was born in your state. My mother was a Quaker. My ancestors in the time of Washington baked bread for George Washington's troops when they crossed Delaware. My father was a slave. I stand here struggling for the rights of my people to be full citizens in this country. And we are not. We are not in Mississippi. We are not in Montgomery, Alabama. They're not in Washington. They are nowhere. And that is why I'm here today. You want to shut up every Negro who has the courage to stand up and fight for the rights of his people, for the rights of workers, and I have been on many a picket line for the steel workers, too. And that is why I'm here today.
3: Would you tell us whether or not you know Thomas W. Young? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Thomas W. Young is a Negro president of the Guide Publishing Company. I'd like to read you. His testimony, quote, Paul Robeson has no moral right to place in jeopardy the welfare of the American Negro to advance a foreign cause. In the eyes of the Negro people, this false prophet is unfaithful to their country and they repudiate him, close
1: quote. Do you know the man that said that? I invoke the fifth amendment now. Can I read my statement? It is a sad and bitter comment.
3: While you were in Paris in 1949, Mr. Robson, did you tell an audience the American Negro would never go to war against the Soviet... Now, may I say
1: that is slightly out of context. May I explain to you what I did say? I remember the speech very well. 2,000 students who came from populations that would range to six or 700 million people asked me to say in their name that they did not want war. No part of my speech in Paris says 15 million American Negroes would do anything. I said it was my feeling that the American people would struggle for peace, and that has been since underscored by the President of these United States. Now in passing, I said... Do you know any
3: people who want war?
1: Listen to me. I said it was unthinkable to me that any people could take up arms in the name of a man like Senator Eastland of Mississippi against everybody gentlemen I still say that this United States government should go to Mississippi and protect my people that is what it should do
3: I lay before you sir an article quote I am looking for full freedom unquote by Paul Robeson in the worker July 3rd 1949 quote I said it was unthinkable that the Negro people of America or elsewhere could be drawn into war with the Soviet Union I repeat
1: Yet with a hundredfold emphasis, they will not close quote. And gentlemen, they have not. It is clear that no Americans are going to go to war with the Soviet Union. While you were in Stockholm, did you make a little speech? I made all kinds of speeches. Let me read you a quotation. Let me listen. Do so, please. I am a lawyer. It would be a revelation if you would listen to counsel. In good company, I usually listen. But, you know, people wander around in such fancy places.
3: You said, Mr. Robson, and I quote, I belong to the American resistance movement, which fights against American imperialism, just as the resistance movement
1: fought against Hitler. Just like those who, Douglas and Harriet Cubmen were underground railroaders and fighting for our freedom. You bet your life.
3: I have to insist that you listen to these
1: questions. I am listening.
3: I quote further, why should the Negroes ever fight against the only nation in the world where racial discrimination is prohibited and where the people can live freely? Never. They will never fight against either the Soviet Union
1: or the People's Democracies, close quote. Did you make that statement? I do not remember, but what is perfectly clear today is that 900 million people other colored people have told you they will not 400 million in india and millions everywhere have told you when that is this is
3: answered the question doesn't need to make a speech did you write an article that was published in the ussr information bulletins yes. quote i want to emphasize that only here in the soviet union did i feel that i was a real
1: man with a capital m close so, quote i would say what is your name errant. I am quite willing to answer the question. When I was a singer years ago, and this, this you will have to listen to. I am listening. I am a bass singer. So for me, it was Charlie the great Russian bass, not Crusoe the tenor. I learned the Russian language to sing their songs. I wish you would listen now. Mr.
9: Chairman, I ask
3: you to direct the witness to answer the question. Just be fair with
1: I you. ask for order. The great poet of Russia is of African blood.
3: Well, Let us not go so it is far to
1: explain this. Did
3: you make that statement?
1: When I first went to Russia in 1934. Did you make that when statement? When I first went to Russia in Did 1934. Did you make that statement? In Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No color prejudice like in Mississippi. No color prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being. But I do not feel the pressure of color as I feel it in this committee today. Why do you not stay in Russia? Because my father was a slave and my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you. And no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear? You are here because you are promoting the communist cause. I am here because I'm opposing the neo-fascist cause, which I see arising in these committees. Jefferson could be sitting here. Frederick Douglass could be sitting here. Eugene Debs could be sitting here.
3: Now what prejudice are you talking about? You were graduated from Rutgers. You were graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. I remember seeing you play football at Lehigh. There's no
1: prejudice against you. Just a moment. This is something I challenge very deeply, that the success of a few Negroes can make up for $700 a year for thousands of Negro families in the south. My father was a slave and I have cousins who are sharecroppers. I do not see success in terms of myself i have sacrificed hundreds of thousands of dollars for what i believe in while you were
3: in moscow mr robson did you make a speech lauding
1: stalin i can't remember
3: have you recently changed what mind has happened about stalin? To
1: stalin gentlemen is a question for the soviet union and i won't argue with a representative of the people who in building america wasted the lives of my people you are responsible you and your forebears for 60 to 100 million black people dying in the slave ships and on the plantations. Don't you ask me about anybody. Please. I'm
3: sure you wouldn't want to discuss with us the slave labor camps in the Nothing Soviet Nothing could more
1: on slavery than this society, I assure you.
3: I would invite your attention to the Daily Worker of June 29, 1949, with reference to a get-together with you and Ben Davis, formerly Communist Councilman in New York. And you now, Ben One Davis. Of My
1: dearest friends, he is as patriotic an American as can be. And you, gentlemen, are the non-patriots. Just
3: a minute. You <clears throat> are
1: the un-American.
3: The hearing is now adjourned. I think it should be. I've endured all this, but I can
1: And I read my statement. No! The meeting is adjourned. It should be.
7: I want to jump in real quick. Every time he was asked a question, a simple question that would have been a yes or a no, he enacted the fifth, or claimed he didn't remember. And when they started citing him, and he started saying that, you know, America is so racist at this time, we hate black people in America, he deflects every question about his affiliations to the Communist Party of America. And being popular overseas in the Muzzle he pleads the fifth, or claims he can't remember, and deflects the question into racist territories. When confronted with the fact that the guy who runs the American Negro Coalition denounces Paul Robeson, he starts getting very defensive, very angry, and starts making speeches and dancing around answering any of the questions directly. Not exactly the actions of a man with nothing to hide, or the actions of the innocent, or even somebody who thinks they did nothing wrong dancing around the questions deflecting the questions and turn everything into an identity politics thing is something you see on the left quite frequently
5: <clears throat>
7: and now we move on to the next bit of testimony this next testimony comes from everybody's creator of the house of mouse A man who was lampooned by communists and smeared with propaganda, claiming that he was an anti-Semitic racist, which is absolute horseshit. Put together by the Communist Union-led Animators Guild of California, who staged protests despite him having some of the most competitive wages of not just entertainment, but in America as a whole. Let's get into the footage.
9: Hollywood since 1923 and at the present time you own and operate the Walt Disney studio at Burbank California well I'm one of the owners and how, how many people are employed there approximately at the present time about uh, 600 and what is Well, appro- we have sold them some films good many years ago uh, they bought the three little pigs and used it through Russia and uh, they looked at a lot of our pictures and uh, I think they ran a lot of them in Russia, but then turned around and turned them back to us and said they didn't want them. They didn't suit their purposes. Are these films, the dialogue, translated uh, into the various foreign languages? One of My boys, my artists, came to me and told me that uh, Mr. Sorrell, Herbert Sorrell, Was that uh, Herbert
10: K. Sorrell? Herbert K. Sorrell,
9: uh, was trying to take him over. And uh, I explained to them that it it was none of my concern that I had been cautioned to to not even talk with any of my boys on labor. And they said it wasn't a matter of labor, that it was just a matter of of them not wanting to go with Sorrell. And they they had heard that I was going to sign with Sorrell. And they said that they wanted an election to prove that uh, Sorrell didn't have the majority. And I said I had a right to demand an election. So when Sorel came, I demanded an election. Sorrell wanted me to sign on a bunch of cards that he had there that he claimed were uh, the majority, but the other side had claimed the same thing. And I told Mr. Sorrell that there's only one way for me to go, and that was an election. And that's what the law had set up. The National Labor Board was for that purpose. And he laughed at me, and he said that uh, he used the Labor Board as it suited his purposes. And that uh, he had lost some election. He'd been sucker enough to go for that labor board ballot. He lost some election, I can't remember the name of the place, by one vote. Said It took took him two years to get it back. And he said he would strike. And that was his weapon. He said, I have all the tools of trade sharpened. And I couldn't stand the ridicule or the smear of a strike. And I told him it was a matter of principle with me that I couldn't go on working with my boys, feeling I had had sold him down the river to him on his say-so. And uh, he laughed at me and told me that I was naive, I was foolish. He said, you can't stand this strike that I'll smear you and I'll make a dust bowl out of your place, if I choose to. I didn't hear that. Didn't he said he'd make a dust bowl out of my plant. And I told him I'd have to go that way was a sorry that he, he might be able to do all that, but I'd have to stand on that. Well, the result was that he struck I believe at that time, Mr. Sorrell was a communist because of all the things that I had heard, and uh, uh, and had seen uh, his name appearing on many of the commie front things. And when he pulled the strike, the first people to put me, to smear me and put me on the unfair list were all of the commie front organizations. I can't remember them all. They've changed so often. But one that's cleared my mind is the League of Women Voters, The People's World, The Daily Worker, and uh, the PM Magazine in New York. They smeared me. Nobody came near to find out what the true facts of the thing were. And I even went into uh, the same smear in South America through some commie uh, periodicals in South America. And generally throughout the world, all the, uh, uh, the commie groups. That conversation? Well, I uh, didn't pull my punches on how I felt. I, uh, and he evidently heard that I had called them all a bunch of communists, and I believe they are. And at the meeting, he leaned over and he said, that you, uh, you think I'm a communist, don't you? And I told him that all I knew is what I'd heard and what I had seen. And he laughed and said, well, I used their money to finance the, my strike of 1937. And uh, he said that he got the money through a personal check of some actor, and I don't know who that came. He didn't even name the actor. I didn't go into it any further. I just listened. Can you name any other individuals that were active at the time? I I don't believe it's a political party. I believe it's an un-American thing. And the the thing that, that I resent the most is that they are able to get into these unions and take them over and represent to the world that a group of people that are in my plant that I know are good 100% Americans uh, have, are trapped by this group, and they're represented to the world as supporting all of those ideologies, and it's not so. And I feel that the, that they really ought to be smoked out and shown up for what they are so that all the good free causes in this country, all the liberalisms that really are American, can go out without this taint of communism. That's my sincere feelings on it. Do you feel that there is a... No, as I qualify to say in that, I just feel that the thing is, can be proven un-American, that it, it ought to be outlawed. And I think that that uh, some way should be done without interfering with the rights of people. And I think that will be done. I have that faith. Without interfering, I mean with the good uh, American rights that we all have now and we want to preserve. Have you any suggestions to offer as to how the industry can be helped in fighting this menace well I think there's, there's a good start toward it uh, I know that I've been uh, handicapped out there in fighting it because they've been hiding behind the uh, the labor setup they get themselves closely tied up in the labor thing so that if you try to get rid of them they'd make a labor case out of it and I think that they can clean them out of the labor unions and, and get our unions I believe in the American way of of the labor unions and, and to keep them clean, we got to fight for it. That's all the questions I have, Mr. Chairman. And in the world,
10: I think you as a creator of entertainment, uh, probably... Uh
7: so that footage is from the Kino Library. Unfortunately, as you can tell, there was a lot of cuts in it, and I've Googled around I can't seem to find the entire thing. But I did find a transcript of it, and this is from the Disney and More site. Published Saturday, February 23rd, 2019. And it begins here. Full transcript. The testimony of Walter E. Disney before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, the 24th of October, 1947. Robert E. Stripling, chief investigator, begins... And I'll go back and forth. I'll say chief and Disney, so you know who I'm talking about. Chief. Mr. Disney, will you state your full name and... Present address, please. Disney responds with, Walter E. Disney, Los Angeles, California. Chief. When and where were you born, Mr. Disney? Disney. Chicago, Illinois, December 5th, 1901. Chief. December 5th, 1901. Disney. Yes, sir. Chief. What is your occupation, Disney? while I'm a producer of motion pictures and cartoons. Chief, Mr. Chairman, the interrogation of Mr. Disney will be done by Mr. Smith. The chairman, J. Parnell Thomas, Mr. Smith. Smith, Mr. Disney, how long have you been in that business? Walt Disney, since 1920. Chief, or I'll start saying Smith at this point. I guess Smith. Sorry, I lost my place. Smith, have you ever been in Hollywood during this time? Disney, I've been in Hollywood since nineteen twenty-three. Smith, at present time, you own the, you own and operate the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California. Disney, well, I am one of the owners, part owner. Smith, how many people are employed there approximately? Disney, at the present time, about 600. Smith, and what is the approximate largest number of employees you have had in the studio? Disney, well, close to 1,400 at times. Smith, Will you tell us a little about the nature of this particular studio and type of pictures you make? And approximately how many per year? Disney. Well, mainly cartoon films. We make about 20 short subjects and about two features a year. Smith. Will you take... Will you talk just a little louder, Mr. Disney? Disney. Yes, sir. Smith. How many did you say? Disney, about 20 short subject cartoons and about two features per year. Smith, and some of these characters in your film consist of? Disney, you mean such as Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Snow White, and the Seven Dwarves, and things of that sort. Smith, where are these films distributed? Disney, all over the world. Smith, in all countries of the world? Disney, Disney. Do Disney, Disney. Well, except the Russian countries, Smith. Why aren't they distributed in Russia, Mister Disney? Disney. Well, they can't do bus- Well, we can't do business with them, Smith. Ah, uh, fuck. Well, oh, I keep losing my place. There's a fly flying around my room, and I'm- I lose my mind and just hunt it down, kill it, and like fucking get the chance. Damn it. Ugh. Okay, where was I? Walt Disney. All over the world. Smith. In all countries of the world? Disney. Well, except the Russian countries. Smith. Why aren't they distributed in Russia, Mr. Disney? Walt Disney. Well, we can't do business with them. Smith. What do you mean by that? Walt Disney. Oh, well. Oh, well. We have sold some films a good many years ago they bought the three little pigs in 1990 in 1933 and used it all through russia and they looked at a lot they looked at a lot of our pictures and think they ran a lot of and i think they ran a lot of them in russia but then turned their back on us and said they didn't want them they didn't suit their purposes smith Is the dialogue in these films translated into various foreign languages? Walt Disney, yes. One film we did in ten foreign versions. That was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Smith, have you ever made any pictures in your studio that contained propaganda and that were propaganda films? Walt Disney, well, during the war we did. We made quite a few working with different government agencies. We did one for the Treasury on Taxes. And did four anti-Hitler films. And I did one on my own for air power. Smith. From those pictures that you made, have you any opinion as to whether or not the films can be used effectively to disseminate propaganda? Walt Disney. Yes, I think they proved that. Smith. How do you arrive at that conclusion, Walt Disney? <clears throat> well, on one of on the one for the Treasury on taxes, it was to let people know that taxes were important in the war effort. As they explained to me, they had 13 million new taxpayers, people who had never and people who had never paid taxes. And they explained that it would be impossible to prosecute all those. That were delinquent, and they wanted—they wanted to put this story before those people, so they would get their taxes in early. I made the film, and after the film had its run, the Gallup poll organization polled the public, and the findings were that 29% of the people admitted that they had inf- that it had influenced them. Into getting their taxes in early and giving them a picture of what taxes will do, Smith. Aside from those pictures you made during the war, have you made any other pictures, or do you permit pictures to be used, or do you permit pictures to be used in your studio to contain propaganda? Walt Disney. No, we never have. During the war, we thought it was a different thing. It was the first time we ever allowed anything like that to go into the films. We watch so that nothing gets into the films that would be harmful in any way to any group or any country. We have large audiences of children and different groups. And we try to keep them as free from anything that would offend anybody as possible. We work hard to see that nothing Of that sort, creeps in. Smith, do you have any people in your studio at the present time that you believe are communist or fascist or employed there? Walt Disney, no. At the present time, I feel that everybody in my studio is 100% American. Smith, have you had at any time, in your opinion, in the past... Have you at any time in the past had any communists employed at your studio? Walt Disney, yes. In the past, I had some people that I definitely feel were communists. Smith, as a matter of fact, Mr. Disney, you experienced a strike at your studio, did you not? Walt Disney, yes. Smith, and is it your opinion that the strike instituted by, instituted by members of the Communist Party serve their purpose well Disney well it proved itself so with well it proved itself so with time and I definitely feel it was a communist group trying to take over my artist and they did not take them over Ch- the chairman do you say or do you say they did take them over Well Disney they did take them over Wait let me reread that last part. Smith, and is it your opinion that the strike was instituted by members of the Communist Party to serve their purpose? Walt Disney, well, it proved itself with time. I definitely feel the Communist group was trying to take over my artist and they did take them over. The chairman, do you say they did take them over? Walt Disney, they did take them over. Smith, will you explain that to the committee, please. Walt Disney. It came to my attention when a delegation of my boys, my artists, came to me and told me that Mr. Herbert Sowell Smith. Is that Herbert K. Sorrell? Walt Disney. Herbert K. Sorrell was trying to take them over. I explained to them that it was none of my concern that I had been cautioned to not even talk with any Sorry, that I had been cautioned to not even talk with any of my boys on labor. They said it was not a matter of labor. It was just a matter of them not wanting to go with Sorrel. And they had heard that I was going to sign with Sorrel. And they said that they wanted an election to prove that Sorrel didn't have the majority. And I said that I had the right to demand an election. Let me make sure I'm on the right line. And I said that I had a right to demand an election. So when Sorel came to me and demanded an election, Sorrell wanted me to sign a bunch of cards that he had there that he claimed were the majority. But the other side had claimed the same thing. I told Mr. Sorrell that there is only one way for me to go on, and that was an election. And that is what the law had set up. The National Labor, the National labor Relations Board was for that purpose. He, laugh, he laughed at me and he said that he would use the labor board as it suited his purposes and that he had been, had been a sucker enough to go for that labor board ballot and he had lost some election. I can't remember the name of of the place by one vote. He said it took him two years to get it back. He said he would strike that that was his weapon. He said, quote, I'll have all of the tools of the trade sharpened that I couldn't stand the ridicule or smear of a strike. I told him that it was a matter of principle with me that I couldn't go on working with my boys feeling that I had sold them down a river to him on his say so. And he laughed at me and told me that I was naive and foolish. He said, you can't stand this strike. I will smear you and I will make a dust bowl out of your plant. This is the guy that peddled that Walt Disney was anti-Semitic and hated Jews and hated blacks and hated women and all this other nonsense. When all that is absolute bullshit. It was all a big smear by a disgruntled communist named Sowell. Chairman. What was that? Walt Disney. He said he would make a dust bowl out of my plant if he chose to. I told him that I would have to go that way. Sorry that he might be able to do all that, but I would have to stand on that. The result was the result was that he struck. I believe that at, I believe at that time Mr. Sorwell was a communist because of all the things that I have heard and having seen his name appearing on a number of kami front things he was pulled the when he pulled the strike the first people to smear me and put me on the unfair list of all the kami front organizations i can't remember them all they change so often but one that is clear in my mind is the League of Women Shoppers. The People's World, The Daily Worker, and the PM magazine in New York. They smear me. Nobody came near to find out what was true what was what the true facts were of the thing. <clears throat> Nobody came near to find out what the true facts of the thing were. And I even went through the same smear in South America. Those, some commie protocols in South America. And generally throughout the world, all the commie groups began to smear campaigns against me and my pictures. John McDowell. In what fashion was that smear, Mr. Disney? What type of smear? Walt Disney. Well, they distorted everything. They lied. There was no way you could ever, ever counteract anything that they did. They formed picket lines in front of the theaters. And, well, they tried to call my plant a sweatshop. And that is not true. And nobody in Hollywood would prove it otherwise. They claimed things that were not true at all, And there was no way you could fight back. It was not a labor problem at all, because, I mean, I have never had a labor trouble before. And I think that would be backed up by anybody in Hollywood. Smith, as a matter of fact, you have. Sorry, Smith, as a matter of fact, you have now, you have... How many union operating in your plant? Chairman, excuse me just a minute. I would like to ask a, ask a question. Smith, pardon me. Chairman, in other words, Mr. Disney, communists out there smear you because you wouldn't chuckle, you wouldn't knuckle under. Well, Disney, I wouldn't go along with their way of operating. I, I insist on it going through the National Labor Relations Board. And he told me outright that he used them as it suited his purpose. Chairman, supposing you had given in to him, then what would, you, what would have been the outcome, Walt Disney? Well, I would never have given in to him because it was a matter of principles with me. And I fight for principles. My boys have been there, have grown up in the business with me. And I didn't feel like I could sign them over with to anybody. They were vulnerable at the time. And they were not organized. This is a new industry, Chairman. Go ahead, Mr. Smith. Smith. How many labor unions approximately do you have operating in your studios at present time? Walt Disney. Well, we operate about, we operate around 35, I think. We have contracts with 30. Smith. At the time the strike, at the time of the strike, you didn't have any grievances or labor troubles whatsoever in your plant. Walt Disney, no. The only real grievance was between Sorrell and the boys within my plant. They demanding they demanding an election, and they never got it. Smith, do you recall having any conversations with Mr. Sorrell relative to communism? Walt Disney, yes, I do. Smith, will you relate that conversation? Walt Disney, well, I didn't pull any punches on how I felt. He evidently heard that I had called him, I had called them all a bunch of communists, and I believed they are. At the meeting... He leaned over and he said, quote, You think I'm a communist, don't you? And I told him that all I know was what I heard and what I had seen. And he laughed and said, quote, Well, I used their money to finance my strike. I used their money to finance my strike of 1937. End quote. And he said that he had gotten the money through a personal check of some actor, but he didn't name the actor. I didn't go into it any further, I just listened. (laughs) Smith, can you name any other individuals that were active at this time of your strike that you believe, in your opinion, are communist Walt Disney? Well, I feel that there is one artist in my plant that came in there, he came in about 1938 And he sort of stayed in the background. He wasn't too active, but he was the real brains of this. I believe he is a communist. His name is David Hilberman Smith. How is it spelled? Walt Disney, H-I-L-B-E-R-M-A-N, I believe. I looked into his record and found that, number one, that he had no religion and number 2 that he had spent a considerable he had spent considerable time at the Moscow Art of Theater studying art direction or something like that smith any others mr disney well disney well i think Sorrell is sure tied up with them if he isn't a communist he sure should be one smith do you remember the name of william pomerantz Did he have anything to do with it? Walt Disney, yes, sir. He came in later. Sorrell put him in charge as business manager of cartoonists. And later, he went to the screen actors as their business agent. And in turn, he put in another man by the name of Maurice Howard, the present business agent. And they are all tied up with the same outfit, Smith. What is your opinion of Mr. Pomerance and Mr. Howard as to whether or not they are or are not communists? Walt Disney, in my opinion, they are communist. No one has any way of proving those things though. Smith, were you able to produce were you able to produce during the strike? Walt Disney. Yes I did. Because there was very few, very small major majority that was on the outside all the other unions ignored the line ignored all the lines because of the setup of the thing smith what is your personal opinion on the communist party mr disney as to whether or not it is a political party walt disney well i don't believe it is a political party i believe it is an un-american thing the thing that i resent the most is that they are able to get into some unions, take over them and represent to the world that a group of people are in my plant that I know are good. One hundred percent Americans are trapped by this group and they are represented. They're represented to the world as supporting all the all those ideologies. And it is not so. And I feel that they really ought to be smoked out and shown up for what they are. So that all of the good, free causes in this country, all the liberalisms that are really American, can go out without the taint of communism. That is my sincere feeling on it. Smith. Do you feel that there is a threat of communism in the motion picture industry? Walt Disney, yes, there is. And there are many reasons why they would like to take take it over or get in control of it or disrupt it. But I don't think they have gotten very far. And I think the industry is made up of good Americans. Just like in my plant, good, solid Americans. My boys have been fighting fighting it longer than I have. They are trying to get out from under it. And they will in time if we can just show them up. Smith. There are presently pending before this committee two bills relative to outlawing the Communist Party. Fuck, I wish they went through. What thoughts have you on whether or not those bills should be passed? Walt Disney. Well, I don't know as... I, well, I don't know as I qualify to speak on that. I feel if the thing can be proven on American that it ought to be outlawed. I think in some way it should be done without interfering with the rights of the people. I think that it will be done. I have that faith. Without interfering, I mean, with the good Americans' rights that we all have now. And we want to preserve them. Smith, have you any suggestions to offer to how the industry can be helped in fighting this menace, Walt Disney? Well, I think there is a good start towards it. I know that I have been handicapped out of there there in fighting because they have been hiding behind this labor setup. They get themselves closely tied up in the labor thing. So that if you try to get rid of them, they make the labor case out of it. We must keep the American labor unions clean. We have, we have got to fight for them. Smith. That is all the questions I have, Mr. Chairman. Chairman. Mr. Vale. R. D. Vale, no questions. Chairman. Mr. McDowell. J. McDowell, no questions. Walt Disney, sir. Jay and I have no questions. You have been a good witness, Well Disney. Thank you, Chairman. Mr. Disney, you are the fourth producer we have had, on, had as a witness. And each one of those four producers said, generally speaking, the same thing. And that is that the communists have made in-road, inroads, have attempted to inroad, I just want to point out that because there seems to be a very strong unanimity among the producers that have testified before us, in addition to producers, we have had actors and writers testify the same. There is no doubt, but what the movies are probably... There is no doubt, but what the movies are probably... The greatest medium of entertainment in the United States, and probably the greatest medium for entertainment in the United States and in the world. I think you, as a creative entertainment, probably are one of the greatest examples in the profession. I want to congratulate you on the form of entertainment which you have given the American people and have given to the world and congratulate you for taking time out to come here and testify before this committee. He has been very helpful. Do you have any more questions, Mr. Striplin? Smith. I am sure he does not have any more, Mr. Chairman. Rez. No, I have no more questions. Chairman. Chairman. Thank you very much, Mr. Disney. And that is the end of Walt Disney's testimony. Now we move on to another testimony. This one is in full and it's by William Mandel. My name is William Mandel.
8: I live at 233 Lake Drive, Berkeley. By occupation, I am a translator of scientific material, a lecturer, a leader of travel tours, an author, Radio and television commentator, and have been a newspaper man at various times until committees such as this made it difficult for me to continue in some of these fields. I can say, not facetiously,
4: but in earnest phrase, you're certainly engaged in a number of activities here. Uh, you're appearing today in response to a subpoena which is heard upon you by this committee? I do.
8: And you're represented by the council? I am. Uh, to the degree that a council not able to speak for me can represent me.
4: Could you kindly identify yourself, please, council.
8: By the way, if the television men want some music, put those lights on. I think he was suggesting work? they can put them on if they want something to show their audiences. Fine, you might miss something.
4: Do you understand you want the lights on? I want the lights on, precisely.
8: I want the fullest glare of publicity in this committee's activity.
4: Where and when were you
8: born, please, sir? was born in New York City on June 4th, 1917. Give us a word
4: about your education.
8: Yes, sir. I was, engaged, I was educated in the public schools, junior high schools, and high schools in New York City. I had one semester in biochemistry at the age of 14 at the University of Moscow, USSR. I specify my age so no, no nonsense about the Lenin School can be asked of me. I then had one year at City College in New York. I was expelled for opposition to military training in 1933 at age 16. In 1947, the Hoover Institute at Stanford University engaged me as a fellow at postdoctoral stipend on the basis of two books I had written for the specific purpose of compiling an encyclopedia of the USSR. This is my education.
4: Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Communist
8: Party? Sir, I am 42 years of age and have never had to face a jury as defendant or grand jury as witness in my life. My research and writing have been so public that two committees similar to this one, the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee and the McCarthy Committee, subpoenaed me as far back as eight and seven years ago, respectively for having written a book titled The Soviet Far East and Central Asia. No indictment resulted from those hearings either or from my continued public speaking or writing since that date. Clearly, therefore, I have engaged, I have committed no crime under any of the laws of this country and am not engaged in subversion. Consequently, I refuse to testify on the grounds that as a radio and TV public affairs broadcaster active in those capacities today, the subpoena issued to me interferes with the rights of my stations to schedule informational programs on their merits, and is thus a direct violation of the First Amendment guarantee of freedom of speech and of the people's right to hear. Further, as a scholar with a 20-year record of research in public writing and lecturing in my chosen field, the study of the Soviet Union, a field admitted by all to be one in which this country is in vital need of knowledge, I refuse to testify on the grounds that the subpoena is a violation of freedom of inquiry, which can only be expressed with the free speech and free press guaranteed in the First Amendment to the academic community as to all others. Lastly, I certainly shall not answer questions representing allegations against me made by persons not present and not identified, whom I cannot confront and whom my lawyer cannot cross-examine as to their truthfulness. To rest my case solely on the First Amendment would, as 36 cases now on the courts show,
6: condemn me to years of
8: court action at enormous cost. and It would cost me my home and impoverished my family for a very long time to come, which of course is what this committee desires. Therefore, I also refuse to testify under my right not to be a witness against myself, a right originated to protect the innocent. The guilty can be convicted by the testimony of others if there is any real evidence to present.
4: Do you honestly
8: apprehend, sir,
4: that if you told this committee truthfully while you're under oath whether or not you are now this instant, or ever have been a member of the Communist Party, you would be supplying information which might be used against you in a criminal proceeding?
8: Honorable beaters of children and sadists, uniformed and in plain clothes, Distinguished Dixiecrat wearing the clothing of a gentleman. Eminent Republican who opposes an accommodation with a one country with which we must live at peace in order for us all and our children to survive. My boy of 15 left this room a few minutes ago in sound health and not jail solely because I asked him to be in here to learn something about the procedures of the United States government and one of its committees. Had he been outside where the son of a friend of mine had his head split by these goons operating under your orders, my boy today might have paid the penalty of permanent injury or a police record for the pedophore desiring to come here and hear how this committee operates. If you think that I am going to cooperate with this collection of Judas's, of men who sit there in violation of the United States Constitution. If you think I will cooperate with you in any way, you are insane.
4: Now, sir, were you a lecturer? Were you a lecturer in the California Labor School in San Francisco? in
8: 1947 yes sir i was and i lectured on shostakovich's oratorio song of the forest what do you know about that
4: and were you were you at that time a member of the communist party and did you lecture as a communist as
8: i told you before sir if there are laws on the books of this country under which any of the activities in which I have engaged publicly and openly, and I would be delighted to bring you a list of books literally this long, which either I have written or which have been cited as authority in books written years later in other countries, or journals to which I have contributed. If any of this public record, almost all of it scholarly, By anybody's definition is to be regarded or have were regarded by anyone as criminal activity there are laws on the books under which the proper authorities of the United States could have taken or could now take action against me I have never disappeared from my home I have been available at all times this question has no purpose other to harass me when I was asked this question last in 1943 by the late Joe McCarthy. And let me say that I am honored when people come up to me on the streets, perhaps I don't deserve this honor, and say, you're the man who killed Joe McCarthy." Because I happened to appear on the first day of the book burning hearing, and I did my best to conduct myself in the manner which I'm conducting myself today. If there were any such evidence against me under any law, the proper authorities could move against me. This body is improperly constituted. It is a kangaroo court. It does not have my respect. It has my utmost contempt and I am not going to answer that question, sir.
4: Do you do you have do you have present information respecting the operation of the criminal conspiracy dedicated to the overthrow of this government by force and violence? Which criminal conspiracy is represented on American soil in part? by that entity known as the Communist Party?
8: My answer is no, sir. And no matter how many ways you answer that question, I will remain the same. All
4: right, right, sir. Do you have present information respecting the activities of the Communist Party? In northern california
8: would you kindly define what you mean by present information sir? you mean do i read books or newspapers i read books or know newspapers. from personal
4: experience being closed communist party meetings the identification of persons who to your certain knowledge are now or in the recent past have been members of the
8: communist party active in north northern california <clears throat> My answer is no, and if I did, I would not tell you. But my answer is no.
4: Are you now a member of the Communist you Party? You got
8: that answer. Before.
4: I asked you whether or not you had ever you been got got that the answer party. Mr. Chairman, I expect to suggest to the witness you already directed to answer the question whether or not he is now a member of the Communist I mean, Party. If you will look at the record of my statement, you will find that that statement covered this question. Chairman, I expect to suggest the witness now the order directed to answer the question, whether or not he is now in this country's question. This is, a, most, uh, this is a, que- a specific question on that point that has not technically been asked, and I order you to answer it.
8: My, uh, very fortunate that I have an attorney who seems to think about these things just as I do. I'm very honored. Uh, This question is an invasion of my political privacy. I answered it at the outset, and no matter how many tricky forms you take to put it again, you will get that same answer. It has been answered.
4: Well, does the record reflect a clear direction that you have been directed to answer that question? To whether or not you are now, this instant, a member of the Communist Party? You have to indicate that you're declining to answer for the reasons previously indicated, is that correct? Yes, right? that is correct. That's what I understood you to try to say. That is it. correct. That's all we wanted to know. Thank you, sir. We have no further questions, Mr. Chairman, this witness. What does this do?
7: We now move on to our fourth testimony in the Un American Investigation and Trials. This is Whitaker Chambers' testimony, classified under 25008611 in house documents. The testimony you're
3: about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. I hope you
5: God. Uh,
10: uh, Sit right down there, Mr. Chambers, and talk in the microphone.
5: That's the one, yes. Your full
10: name for the record?
2: My full name is J. David Whittaker Chambers, Philadelphia, 1901, April 1st.
10: What is your present occupation? I'm a senior. Were you at one time a member of the Communist Party? I
2: was. How long were you a member of the Communist Party? I was a member of the Communist Party from 1924 until about 19, until
10: 1937 or eight, early, 38.
2: You detail to the committee the various
10: positions which you held in the Communist Party. Yes.
2: I was, at one time, a writer on The Daily Worker, later a foreign news editor of The Daily Worker, later, in effect, managing editor of The Daily Worker, editor of The New Masses, and a functionary in the underground. Mr. Chambers, when you were with the new 32,
10: roughly, through
2: 1937.
10: During that period, did you meet the person who was on the witness stand today, Alger Hiss? I did meet Mr. Alger Hiss. Would you now give to the committee a chronological resume of your meeting of Mr. Hiss and how long you knew Mr. Hiss? The circumstances under which you met him? I believe that I was first
2: introduced to Mr. Hiss by Harold Ware and J. Peters, who was the head of the underground of the American Communist Party. The meeting took place in Washington, and I believe in a restaurant. Uh, I then uh, continued to know Mr. Hiss until I broke with the Communist Party in early 1938, and I saw him once again toward the end
10: of 1938. Did you ever meet? Did you ever meet hmm. Mr. Hiss at the offices of the Nile Investigating Committee never, in the Senate did. Office Building? I never did. You never did? Did you ever meet Mr. Hiss at his apartment on 28th Street? I did. How many times did you meet Mr. Hiss, would you say, at the address on 28th Street? I could put... not. You did not? Did Mr. Hiss ever sublease sublease an apartment to you on 28th Street? He did not. He did not. Did he ever permit you to live in an apartment on 28th Street? He did. He did. Did Mr. Hiss at any time sell you the Ford automobile model A 1929 model? He did not. He did not. Do you have questions, sir? Did you?
2: It was in the whole setup. Jay Peters was the organizer of the underground section of the Communist Party. He was dealing with party comrades, and these were dues-paying members of the Communist Party.
4: Wrist, you ask, that was understood.
5: Uh, do you have any other uh, information on what to make your
2: statement this from every time you other than this? Mr. Hiss obeyed party discipline in every respect. Uh,
3: do you, did you yourself uh, have a case
2: on any? Time you, okay, you do, and it on I did. On I
5: way. did. Uh, on
3: <clears one occasion or throat> more
2: at least on one occasion, and I would think on at least on three occasions. <laughs> <laughs> been more than
5: that. <laughs> do you know what kind of bill <laughs>
2: The first car or the car Mr Hiss had when I first knew him was before it. What did you get
5: after that? The Plymouth.
2: You ever that? I have. I think we made one trip to New York together in the Plymouth. We made a trip. Organization of the underground, there should be no communication between the Open Communist Party and the underground Communist Party, except through people delegated by either of those sections. Mr. Hiss, however, insisted that his old car
5: should be given to the Open Communist Party to be used by some poor communist organizer
2: in the West or elsewhere. I was very much opposed to this. J. Peter was also very much opposed to it. But, uh, however, I I will tell my address and get rid of this question right away. No,
10: I don't think so, Mr. Chairman.
7: Not at all. My business address is I'm only going to play a few more of these. This is more for the greater context of what we're talking about. This is now an invest. This is now the HUAC investigation. The testimony of Mr. His and Chambers from the previous episode. This is stored under Footage Farm twenty-five double zero eighty-six TCRUBRFA eleven eleven zero eight.
10: The whole truth, nothing but the truth. My
7: counsel activities in the
10: United States to the diffusion within the United States of subversive and un-American propaganda that is instigated. Uh, Mr. Chambers, can you stand up? Mr. Hiss, have i ever seen the, seen the individual who is standing. I have. Do you know him? I identify him, Mr. Shipley. As Luke?
8: As George Proust.
10: When did you know him as George Proust? I to my best recollection, and I would like to repeat what I've said to the committee before,
6: that I have not had
10: the opportunity for 1935. When did you last see Mr. Proust? As you have identified it. my answer with the same remarks I just made, I would think sometime in 1935. In 1935 was the last time that you saw him? According to my best recollection, not having checked the record. Now, will you remain standing enough, Mr. Chairman? Mr. Chairman, would you swear in, Mr. Chambers? Nothing but the tools to help the government. No. Oh, Mr. no. Mr. Chambers, do you know the individual who is now standing at the witness stand? Who is he? When did you first meet Mr. Hicks? 1934. When did you last see Mr. Hill?
5: 1934.
10: 19- want any of that testimony, mine or Mr. Chambers, which I have never seen, to remain secret, it seems to me, the public and the press I have a right to have full access to all of the testimony that has been taken to this day.
0: Uh, Mr.
10: Chairman, I assume uh, you mm-hmm. as George Cross. Mr. Stripling, I have already, in an effort to be helpful to the committee, when I came to the executive session on the 16th willingly in response to a request from the chairman, given the best recollection. That I have. As I've said, I and as I said then, I have had no opportunity to consult records. The connection between Crosley and Chambers did not enter my mind until Monday morning, the sixteenth, while I was on the way by train to the afternoon session. According to my best recollection, without checking the records, and I do think it would be more helpful if the committee would go by Records. I would like to know what the records say. Some of the records I find are not available to me. I believe they're in the custody of the committee. I have attempted through counsel in the last few days to have access.
7: You've heard about MIAT and our award winning technology. To
10: me as George Crosley came into my office in the Senate office building while I was acting as chief counsel to the Senate committee investigating the munitions industry. He represented himself as a freelance writer for magazines. magazine. He represented himself as preparing a series of articles about the munitions investigation. As did many other members of the press, research people, similar people, he had a perfect right to come to my office either directly or through reference from the central office. Very many members of the press and others in I think it was about June of 1935. Yet the issues raised that are the real issues, it seems to me topsy-turvy to be talking only about leases, Mr. Nixon, And such a serious charge as this, it seems to me we should be getting after the question of my record, what did people with whom I worked closely and intimately, think of me. I'd like to say again that the committee appreciates your suggestions as to how to conduct these hearings, but we do have certain questions to ask
4: whether or not Mr. Gibbs
5: of Mr. Chambers has
10: committed further before this committee as well
5: whether Mr. in Now, as far as the, what are
10: terms of housekeeping the business. that does not seem to me a very rational basis for determining credibility. Obviously, the committee may ask the questions it chooses. Many other things I've been trying to check in the few days since Monday of last week. Been trying to run down the list of staff members of the Senate Committee investigating the munitions industry. As far as I can find out, there is no one single official list anywhere now available. I have recalled certain of the members of the staff. I recall three names offhand of people that Crosley might have met in addition to me around the committee. I mentioned Mr. Rauschenbusch, the chief investigator. He is away on vacation. I have seen in the press that the I think this is... We're just beginning the inquiry. I received a telephone call, rather, one of my counsel did, from someone, a woman, who said she had known George Crosley at this time, that she was fearful of getting her employer into Dutch or something by publicity. We were not able to trace the call, she may have been imagining. So far, the answer to your question is I have not yet been able to find any witness, other than my wife, who remembers him as George Crosby.
5: And he
10: can be. And I shall do all I possibly can, whatever it costs me, within my means, to get at the truth. Now, what is the nature of your question? Would you repeat it, please? Because I paid more attention to the embellishments to the fact that I sold him, Crosley, an automobile. I find it here in the printed testimony which we're now releasing to the public at the request of the committee and at your request. Page 50, I, I agree. For a forward used Model A 1929 roadster, the numbers are A218811, 1, 1. the date. 9 19 that was the date in which it was originally registered in the District of Columbia. Tag, I believe, was 245647. in the name of Alger Hiss, 3411 Old Street, Northwest Washington, D.C. Now, Mr. Hiss, is this your signature which appears on the reverse side of this assignment of title? Mr. Stripling, it certainly looks like my signature to me. Do you have the original document? This no, I do not. This is a photostat. I'd prefer to have the original. Do you have the original? The original document, Mr. Chairman, <laughs> cannot be removed from the Department of Motor Vehicles. They keep it in there. There's written in here, Mr. Chairman, Turner Motor Company, 1781, Florida Avenue Northwest. Did you write that? I couldn't be sure. From the outline of the letters in this photostatic copy, that also looks not unlike my own handwriting. I could be sure, Eric. I'll bring this whole thing back whenever you get it.
3: Yeah, okay. I
5: just want to.
7: By playing you that selection and handful of testimonies that were brought forth by both confirmed communists and people who were testifying against the communists in Hollywood during the McCarthyism era and the House on, on American Activities trial and investigations. I hope to give you an idea of how these trials were carried out. How the people responded to the same questions asked to different individuals. And how they responded when presented with evidence. Some got defensive and started lashing out. Some calmly discussed their points of views on both sides. But that was these trials were organized and put together and set up and funded and ran by joseph mccarthy a senator from california who wanted to root out communism he himself was a veteran of multiple wars in the past and he had seen firsthand in world war ii what the russians and the nazis were up to and he wanted to make sure that never came to american shores i'll go into this in a different episode but he was also a figurehead that led into operation papercliff where America hired Nazi scientists to make them work for us, and then we sent them back to face consequences in large numbers when we were done with what they needed, what we needed them to do. Now moving on, I have just a handful of articles before I wrap up this episode of Inside Four Walls. And now I want to show you someone who played equally as big of a role as Joseph McCarthy in the investigation to expose and hopefully push out communism from America Hollywood, and the movie industry as a whole. A man named Roy M. Brewer. Why have you never heard of him? This man was a born-and-die Democrat who also hated and detested communism and socialism. This man does not fit the general narrative that the left like to push, but not just the left. Those who write history books like to push a certain bullshit narrative as well. And I to introduce you to him just a little bit using the Spartacus Educational SpartacusEducation.edu and .com source. Roy M. Brewer. Roy Brewer, the son of a blacksmith, was born in Nebraska on the 9th of August, 1909. He left school in 1924 and worked as an usher and projectionist at a local cinema. Later, he became chief projector and chief projector operator at the cinema in Grand Island, Nebraska, from where he organized a union projectionist across central Nebraska. In 1932, he was elected as president of the Nebraska State Federation of Labor. During the Second World War, Brewer worked in Washington for the Board of Regulation, regulating and allocating of previous materials. In 1945, he joined the International Alliance of Theatrical State Employees, the IATSE, and moved to Hollywood as its senior representative. According to the IATSE's website, Brewer was under the control of the organized crime. was under control was uh, was under the control of organized crime, and Hollywood bosses quote. The moguls put Brewer on the payroll. And he and his Chicago thugs granted low-wage contracts and no strikes. You now, how they have an issue with him not using strikes. Now, soon afterwards, Brewer took took the side of the producers in their fight with the Conference of Studio Unions, the CSU. And there's that name again. Brewer met studio bosses in secret and arranged for the IATSE members to cross the picket lines. He also mounted a media campaign against the CSU leader. Herbert Sorrell, you'll recognize that name, describing him as a communist and in the pay of the Soviet Union. He also joined forces with Ronald Reagan, president of the Screen Actors Guild, and his determination to destroy the CSU. Again, Sewell ran, smear ads to discredit people publicly, and then he was eventually ousted as a figurehead from Russia who was an internal spy sent from overseas to infiltrate the US, and he himself coined the phrase Babylon when referring to San Francisco in California. Just a refresher from about an hour ago to keep it fresh in your mind. In 1947, Brewer was appointed to the Motion Picture Industry Council. At this time, the House of Un-American Activities Committee, the HUAC, chaired by J. Purnell Thomas, began an investigation into the Hollywood motion picture industry. The HUAC interviewed 41 people who were working in Hollywood, these people attended voluntarily and became known as a friendly witness. And became known as friendly witnesses. During the interviews, they named 19 people who they accused of holding left-wing views. Brewer was interviewed in October 1947 where where claimed that he was... was, ah, sorry, I'm really tired, in 1947, where claims that he knew 13 writers, actors, and directors, he said, were involved in communist activities. This included John Garfield and Dalton Trombo, both of whom had volunteered to act as observers for the studio's pickets in the CSU strike. One of those named Berthold brencht an immigrant playwright, gave evidence that the then left, or sorry, gave evidence and then left for East Germany. Ten others, Herbert Biberman, Lester Cole, Lester Cole, Albert Maltz, Adrian Scott, Samuel Ornitz, Dalton Trombo, Edward Dimtrick, Ring Lardner Jr., John Howard Larson, and Alva Betsy refused to answer any questions. Known as the Hollywood Ten, they claimed that the First Amendment of the United States Constitution gave them the right to do this. The House of Un-American Activities Committee and the courts during the appeals disagreed and all were found guilty of contempt of Contempt of Congress and were sentenced to between six and twelve months in prison. Roy Brewer now commissioned a booklet entitled Red Channels, published on the 22nd of June 1951, and written by Theodore Kirkpatrick, a former FBI agent, and Vincent Harnett, a right wing television producer. It listed the names of 151 writers, directors, and performers who they claimed had been members of subverse organizations. But had not so far been blacklisted. The names included Red Channel the names included in Red Channels had been compiled from a variety of sources, including right-wing journals, counterattacks, FBI files, and a detailed analysis of. Of the Daily Worker, a communist newspaper. Now, it doesn't mention that it's a communist newspaper here. I have an article that explains that, though. Oof. Sorry. Give me one second. The FBI files detailed analysis of the Daily Worker, a newspaper published by the American Communist Party. Well, there you go. A free copy on was sent to those involved in the employing of these people in the entertainment industry. All those people named in the pamphlet were blacklisted until they appeared in front of the House of Un-American Activities Committee, the HUAC, and convinced its members that they had completely renounced their radical past. Brewer added, quote, I told people they had to come clean. They had to come to our side and fight the communists. People listed in the red channels included Larry Alder, Stella Alder, Leonardo Bernstein, Mark Blistein, Joseph, Joseph Bromberg, Lee J. Cobb, Aaron Copland, John Garfield, Howard Da Sava, Dachanel Hemet, Daniel Hemet, E.Y. Harnberg, Lillian Hellman, Burl Ives, Ciro Monstel, Arthur Miller, ah I should have him earlier. Dorothy Parker, Philip Leob, Joseph Lucy, Anne Revere, Pete Seeger, Gail Sangard, Howard K. Smith, Louis Ultermeyer, and Josh White. John Garfield appeared before the HUAC on the, third of, on the 23rd of April, 1951. He answered questions and denied he had ever joined the American Communist Party or he knew of any of its members. He did admit to being a supporter of left-wing causes during the 1930s and had spoken at joint anti-fascist refugees committees. See, antifo is not a new thing. They've been around for almost 100 years, but their practices and figureheads have changed. Meetings in the 1948 presidential elections, he had advocated the election of Henry Wallace, the Progressive Party candidate. Donald J. Jackson questioned Garfield's account about his knowledge of what was going on in Hollywood. Quote, Do you contend that during the seven years or more that you were in Hollywood and in close contact with the situation in which a number of communist cells were operating on a week-to-week basis, with electricians, actors, and every class represented during the entire period of time you were in Hollywood. You did not know of your own personal knowledge a member of the Communist Party. Garfield responded with, quote, When I was originally requested to appear before the committee, I said that I would answer all questions fully and without any reservations. And that is what I have done. I have nothing to be ashamed of and nothing to hide. My life is an open book, and I was glad to appear before you and talk with you. I am no red. I am no pink. I am no fellow traveler. I am a Democrat by politics, a liberal by inclination, and a loyal citizen of this country by every act of my life. Brewer appeared on the 17th of May. He testified that he did not believe that John Garfield was telling the truth. He argued that it was impossible for an actor in Hollywood for an actor in Hollywood and not to be aware of the power of the American Communist Party. quote. I do not think the opinion of one man is of much value, but I think if you could document the employment record of those individuals that were not a- accountable or acceptable to the communist group as against those individuals who were the for who were in the forefront of it, I think you would find a rather substantial indication of that there were influences at work. Those influences work in many, many ways. Lots of times, the opinion of the secretary or of the clerk in a casting bureau can make the difference between whether one man is hired or another man is hired. I can see from my standpoint, knowing the step up in Hollywood, how easily it would be for an underground movement to use influences in such a way that an individual without such protection would be at a devastation would be at a disadvantage <laughs> and i am of the definite opinion that 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 case that that was the case let me rephrase that sorry let me reread that and i am of the definitive opinion that that was the case. I don't, I think it can be proven by records. I haven't attempted to do that yet, though. But, in my judgment, it can and should be done. Brewer maintained his close friendship with Ronald Reagan, who, in 1984, appointed him chairman of the Federal Service in passes panel an arbitration group between federal unions and the U.S. government. He continued with his campaign on the left in 1985. He said, there are still communists, but now they are all in the Democrat Party. And I hate, I hate to say it, I absolutely do, but that has not ended. And the Democrat Party is still full of communists and socialists that are infiltrating this country and trying to dismantle it. But they hide behind terms like democratic socialist. Healthcare, right, Obamacare, is a prime example of a socialistic service in a free, first world economy. And nowadays, you have people calling for free healthcare, free education, free housing, and all this utter nonsense that will only raise taxpayer dollars and make the wealthy already wealthy people Vastly more wealthy. Socialism has only progressed even harder in this country as time has gone on, all perpetuated by the left, which hides behind the thin veil of feeding off your emotions and placating most people's good nature for wanting to help other people who are at a disadvantage. And they hide behind flowery language like equality of outcomes, which doesn't work. It's the same thing as saying my political system will lead to utopia. It is all bullshit. Now let's continue. But of course, before I completely walk away from this article and start digging more into its primary sources, I need to give credit. This article is by John Simkin. His email is listed here at john at com. The copyright on this is 1997, and it was updated January 2020. Interesting that he would revisit this so many years later. And there's a lot of primary sources that we are going to read through right now. Now, the first source that he cites down here, and as I said, this is the primary source for the article I had just previously read from Spartacus Education. Primary source one, Roy M. Brewer, House of Un-American Activities Committee, 17th of May, 1951. It begins... I do not think the opinion of one man is of much value, but I think if you could, if you could document the employment records of those individuals that were, that were not acceptable to the communist group as against those individuals who were, in the forefront of it, I think you would find a rather substantial indication that there were influences at work. Those influences work in mainly many in many many ways. Lots of times, lots of the times, the opinion of a secretary or a clerk in a casting bureau can make the difference between whether one whether one man is hired and another man is fired. I can see from my standpoint, knowing the setup in Hollywood. How easily it would be for an underground movement to use influence in such a way that, the, that an in, individual without much protection would be at a disadvantage. And I am of the definite opinion that there was the case. I think it can be proven by records. I haven't attempted to do that, but my judgment But, in my judgment, it could easily be done. Now, right here we have a long article in the sources here. From the Times, the 27th of September, 2006. Roy Brewer was a complex and divisive figure in American social history. As a leader... Of the craft unions in Hollywood during the 1950s, he curtailed the careers of hundreds of craftsmen who he alleged had communist sympathies. He boasted that he had the power to, quote, shut the town down. Confusingly for his detractors, he did this while condemning the extremism of witch finders, such as McCarthy and espoused the belief that ex-communists ex-communist should be welcomed back to the fold. He claimed that his reign over Hollywood was a battle against a cleaver, relentless enemy of the studios, which were nothing less than an American social <coughs> consensus. It was it was, it was, the same battle. He believed that his friend Ronald Reagan later took, uh, took to the world stage. Rewer became very close to Reagan during the five years of strike after Hollywood's Black Friday in October 1945, and in the tumultu- tumultuous into tumultuisms that followed the end of the Soviet communism in 1991. His work gained fresh approval. Roy and Brewer came to Hollywood from Karo, from Caro, Nebraska. His first job at 15 was as an usher in his local cinema, where he worked as a... Is this just the same article I read a minute ago? Did this... I, this is totally the same article I just read a little while ago. Hmm. Just want to make sure. Yep, alright. This is basically just retraining the same ground I was just covering a minute ago. Moving on to the next article. Now, this article is an older one from the Washington Post. You might sit back and be like, well, James, you've read a lot of articles from sources that are EDUs or independent news sources, not anything corporate. Well, here you go, you fucking weirdo. Was McCarthy right about the left? Published by Nicholas von Hoffman in April 14... April 14th, 1996. Hey, this article's as old as I am. (laughs) The American left has an unexamined past. Like the French conservatives who went into deep denial about their collaboration with the Nazis a half century ago, American leftists, some of their liberal allies, have refused to sort out their own intimate connections with Marxist Leninists in nineteen thirties, forties, and fifties. A footnote a footnote on page seven twenty-five of Witness, his nineteen fifty-two classic of American confessional literature. Whitaker Chambers explains how how this came to pass. He observed quote, it is not the communist, but the ex-communist who have cooperated with the government, who have chiefly suffered, end quote. Writing at the height of the controversy about communists in the U.S. government, Chambers explained, quote, it is worth nothing that not one communist was moved to break with communism under the pressure of his case his being the gentleman who was talking to Walt Disney in the previous segment, let those who wonder about communism and the power of its faith ponder that fact. For decades, for decades after Chambers wrote those words, liberals and leftists held held the high ground in the dispute over whether a communist conspiracy actually exists in the United States or was simply a byproduct of, quote, the paranoid style in American politics, end quote. They came to accept that there was a foreign communist menace, but never a domestic one. There were no rancorous divisions on the the liberal left in the 1950s over who was a spy and who was an accused innocent, who was a secret communist political operative, and who was a straightforward fighter for social justice. Wow, even in ninety six, social justice worries were a thing. Hmm. While anti-communist liberals and the left and leftist ranging from Senator Herbert Humphrey to Dwight McConnell, McDonald sorry condemned the communist, there was a formulaic transparent insincerity about much of the left liberals' anti-communism. In the unmarked in the unmarket universe, sorry, in the upmarket universities and other places where the dominant form of polite liberalism thrived, the accusers who had named names and had pointed out the communist spies were scorned as despicable vermin among more mainstream scholars like Richard Hofstadter. The forces. Of the forces of due mestic anti Let me try that again. The forces of domestic anti-communisms were described largely as manifestations of social underdevelopment and the popular irrationality, not the legitimate concern. As of the nineteen sixties. As the nineteen sixties wore on, the savagery and fertility of the Vietnam War discredited the anti-communist cause. By the end of the 1960s, the demonization of the anti-communists had gained currency. And not just on the far left, everyone from Richard Nixon to Whitaker Chambers to Elizabeth Bentley, a former espionage agent who in the early 1950s had given a score of names to the house of un-American activities, were demise were dismissed as advent as as opportunists, cat paws of reactions, psychos, creeps, blackmailers, and Junior Joe McCarthy's. I want to be a Junior Joe McCarthy. Can I be a Junior Joe McCarthy? As a playwright, Lillian Hellman recalled, "Quote the McCarthy group." a loose term for all the boys, lobbyists, congressmen, State Department, bureaucrats, CIA operators, chose the anti-red scare with perhaps more cynicism than Hitler picked anti-Semitism. That's a comparison, isn't it? But in the last year, as though from the buried toxic waste dump poisons, moving with a slow capillary action of history long hidden are hiccuping up a different truth the material that first made their way to this made their way to the surface in the early 1990s records from moscow's russian center for the Preservation and Study of Documents of Recent History, that's a fucking title, goddamn. provided proof that past peradventure that the Communist Party of the United States was subsidized by the Soviet government and used as a base for extensive espionage in the Americas. So now liberals must face the question, was Joe McCarthy right? Could all of the defiant politicians, the martyrs, the civil liberties, and the blacklisted teachers and entertainers, the earnest professionals and sincere foundation executives have been all wrong? The answer is no and yes. It has long been known that the Communist Party of the United States of America, the CPUSA, had been paid for by the Soviet Union, But acknowledgment of even this truth had been hard to come by at the time. In the liberal and leftist circles, the term Moscow Gold was accompanied most often by derisive laughter and and reposites that it was not Moscow Gold, but the paid dues of FBI informants that kept the CPUSA afloat. Actually... It was both. Ah, damn it. Fucking go away, Papa Babs. Now, comes more from the vaults of the National Security Agency, the NSA, our old friends. In the 1940s, the NSA had a top-secret program called Venona, which intercepted and much later decoded messages between Moscow and its American agents. The recent publications of a botched Venonia transcripts give evidence that Roosevelt and Truman's administrations were rife with communist spies and political operatives who reportedly, or who reported directly or indirectly, to the Soviet government, much as their anti-communist opponents charged. The age of McCarthyism, it turns out, was not a simple witch hunt of the innocent by a malevolent as two generations of high school students and college students had been taught. The sum and substance of this growing body of material is that Ethel and Julius Roseberg executed in June 1953 for atomic espionage, were guilty. Alger Hiss, a darling of the establishment, was guilty. And the dozen and that dozens of lesser known persons such as Victor Poro, some we talked about a little bit ago, Judith Copeland and Harry Gold, another person we talked about earlier, whose innocence of the ass, accu, uh, accusations made against them, had been a tenant of leftist faith for decades, were traitors or at the least the ideological vessels of a foreign threat. Even moderate politicians who insisted upon the fact and argued that these people might have influenced U.S. foreign policy were scorn. Senator Robert Taft, President Taft's nephew, of Ohio said, the greatest Kremlin asset in our history has been the pro-communist group in the State Department who surrendered to every demand of Russia at Yalta and Postodom and promoted at every opportunity the communist cause in China until today. Communism threatens to take over all of Asia. Well, plot twist, motherfucker. Guess what? Guess what? Guess what fucking happened? A red scare is now a fucking chink. Anyway... Quote or that's the end quote by the way when it goes take over all of Asia. Secretary State Secretary of State Dean Anchen, Anson Anson Archson A C H E S O N call him State State Secretary Dean, a pillar of the establishment, concluded that Taft had joined the primitives. The party played. By Kaz Frost, a high level physicist who had worked at Los Alamos. The last sketchy shit that went on in the Los Alamos labs. It had been known for many years as the treason of Rosebergs. Nevertheless, for, for as long as the subject was hotly disputed, was a hotly disputed controversy. It was the practice in the left circles to scoff at the rustic notion that the secret of the bomb could be stolen at all. But now we know, thanks to the latest Vignona transcripts, that a Harvard-trained physicist named Theodore Olive Hall was passing secrets about the instrument which changed the world politics In the last half of the 20th century. I'm hearing a lot of so so far in this article I'm hearing a lot of Joe McCarthy was right not a lot of he was kind of right or he was partially right sounds like a lot of yeah motherfucker was right and again I am reading this article mainly because I I could see a couple of you in my comment sections being like well you're you're really the Spartacus Education Institute really them man I don't know the Daily Wire, really? Mm, don't worry, bitch. I got a I got a Laura Ingram thing here, so enjoy that shit. The disaster brought on the end <clears throat> disaster brought on by the end of the American atomic monopoly was not lost on the more pre prespicuous thinkers. Hmm. Of the time, in 1947, Berthenthal Russell, a British scientist, philosopher, and pacifist leader, saw the monopoly as the world's only opportunity for preventing the Soviets from working their way, or working their will, on much of the globe. His comedy went into Vietnam. Communism is very much a plague, and it will spread and infect everything it gets its hands on. And will do it wielding a cross, a crucifix, and the flag of whatever country he wants to destroy. It's really an infiltrator. It's a double agent. He gets in there, tells you all this good shit, and then he just fucking robs you and slits your throat in the night. Reminds you of a certain incident that happened in Scotland. Some about uh, Glencoe massacre. Anyway. <clears throat> saw the monopoly as the world's Only opportunity for preventing the Soviets from working their will on much of the globe. Nothing the nature of, quote, Asianic communism, which American liberals were often often unable to see in its fullest dimensions, he argued, for forcing Moscow into the humane... Hold on. Moscow into a humane capitulation, even if it took a military ultimatum to do it. But, as the right eye of American politics was blind to fascism in the 1930s, the left eye could not comprehend the nature of communism then or later. and whereas henry and where was harry truman his haplogene graffers whatever today present him as a plucky courageous little guy who stood up to the up to the world of communism and led america into a new age of cosmopolitan internationalism it is a description that millions of his adult contemporaries would have found unrecognizable. In fact, the public conduct of, Truman, of Truman's administrations became the affirmation of the people who said Truman was soft on communism. When Winston Churchill delivered his infamous Iron Curtain speech at Fulton, In March 1946, Truman immediately disavowed the former British Prime Minister, astonishing as it may seem to those who get their history from movies, TVs, and public education. The American president invited Joseph Stalin to come to Fulton and give a speech presenting his side of the story. Truman actually offered to send the battleship Missouri to fetch the Soviet tyrant. Truman. Uh. Truman soon changed directions, giving us the Truman Doctrine calling for a resistance to communism everywhere, (laughs) the Marshall Plan to rebuild Western Europe, and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Or NOAA, by the way. To defend its from Soviet attack. Truman instituted a so-called loyalty boards in all government agencies, but he also called for an investigation into Alger Hiss a red herring. Or, sorry, but he also called the investigation into Alger Hiss a red herring, encouraging the suspicion that the government was not really addressing the communist threat at all. Inevitably came Joe McCarthy, exploited this speculation and suspicions. He came to fame on February 9th, 1950 when he gave a speech at McClure, at the McClure Hotel, McClure Hotel in Wheeling, West Virginia. The exact text was not preserved, but reports on the scene quoted McCarthy saying, quote, While I cannot take the time to name all the men in the State Department who have been named as members of the Communist Party and members of a spine ring, I have here in my hand a list of 205 that were known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party who have nevertheless are still working and shaping policies in the State Department. End quote. McCarthy as his subsequent history would show, knew little about communism on this side of the ocean or the other. This lotish, duplicitous bully, who carried not the names of Reds, but a bottle of hooch in his briefcase, died in disgrace and alcoholism. Yet, in a global sense, McCarthy was onto something. McCarthy may have exaggerated the scope of the problem, but barely. The government was the workplace of perhaps a hundred a hundred communist agents in 1943 to 45. He just didn't know their names. In response to McCarthy's attack on John E. What's that? Tirofu. Deputy Undersecretary of the State said in the previous three years of government had the investigation over 16,000 of its employees had failed to find a communist. Quote, If I can't find a single one, he will be fired by sundown. Purifoy declared. The Venona transcripts contain codes, name, code names of over 200 persons, although some of these were clearly persons who had unwittingly contracted with the Soviet agents. The Venona documents indicate that there were perhaps a dozen Soviet agents in the State Department alone. It is now clear that the Truman administration was looking very hard, or... It is now true it is now very clear that the truman administration was not looking very hard the political terror of the early 1950s in which joe mccarthy was to play a role of a bush league ropsphere was set off by a wider force of conflicts than a quarrel over whether or not roosevelt and truman administrations had been tainted by four first off first off teddy roosevelt great guy big strong bold american one hell of a smile his cousin however was a fucking socialist cripple you think he'd really go looking you think fdr franklin delano roosevelt would really go fucking looking for his own kind please the collusion to which mccarthy applied his match was the truman administration's acquiescence to the imposition of communist dictatorships across the eastern third of europe while washington's policymakers argued that only another world war could stop stalin millions of voters of polish hungarian and estonian czech german lithuanian Letovin and Ukrainian extracted or <clears throat> extractions saw nations to which they had the closest emotional ties come under Soviet thrall, sometimes by actual arrangements with the American government or in the face of a Malmar pro forma opposed by Washington. Starting in Wisconsin, whence McCarthy hailed The political firestorm had ignited, burning the brightest where those emerged pop or those emerged populations were most centralized and concentrated, sorry. In the eyes of celebrity liberalism, Jesus, those up in arms about the government's acceptance of communism's were the unappetizing people of a dull world, of the lower middle class. It doesn't seem like much has changed with Hollywood back then to now. There were piano-legged babushkas of American politics, stolid Slavs and such, thick of the finger and numb of the mind is how they were described. The ongoing Kolopter dividing the society, the elites of Hollywood, Cambridge, and liberal think-tankery alike had little sympathy for bow-legged men with their American Legion caps and their fat wives. <laughs> They're yapping about Yalta and Crenton Forest Catholic Christov, looking out of their pictured windows at their flocks of pink plastic flamingos, and lower middle and the lower middles of their foreign policies, anguished, were too infra dig to be taken seriously. Once a year these people would hold huge, captive National Day rallies in cities across the country, which democratic politicians of taste and sensibility avoided. Remember, this guy is saying what people of the time were saying. This isn't the author saying this shit. It's him saying these are what the people, liberals and leftisms of the time, were saying. Once a year, these people would hold huge, captive National Day rallies, in cities across the country, which Democratic politicians of taste and sensibility avoided. The only Democrats in evidence at these rallies of unstylish anti-communists were often dismissed by their social superiors as some corrupt machine pulls. Auschwitzes and Treble... These fucking Russian names... Treblinka, and Bolson. All the Nazis' concentration camps were dismantled, but the gulag grew, and the left liberals like California Congresswoman Helen Goggin Douglas and the editors of the New Republic magazine seemed to not care. Duh. Working-class anti-communist voters did not fail to notice. The disdain with which some of the liberal intelligentsia regarded them. In the early 1950s, not coincidentally, marked the beginning of the great out-migration of the blue-collar workers from the Democratic Party. When McCarthy and his congressional allies began demanding testimony from alleged communists about the infiltration that were that was real but undocumented the viona program then beginning the most sensitive of state secrets liberals denounced them for their star chamber tactics this term was apt perhaps more so than some of the righteous liberals knew the star chamber was an innovation of 16th century England when the British monarchy faced a challenge very much like that of the United States in the early Cold War. In both cases, in both cases there was a clandestine ideology loose in the land supported with money and military power by foreign government in both cases. The practitioners were secretly engaged, not just in espionage, but in ordinary politics as well. In England, suspected Spanish agents were grilled in secret chambers about their briefs. The grillings of suspected communists four centuries later in America was quite similar, but the many abuses committed in the star chambers in no way changed the fact the clandestine methods of foreign powers were real and very dangerous. This is the essential truth that the left end of the American political spectrum has evaded. The consequences for liberal causes have been devastating. The communist clandestine methods poisoned the politics of the civil rights era in the 1950s, Many people were scared off from supporting the movement because of the common allegations that it was a communist inspired program. The charge could not be more the charge could not be more effectively refuted because nobody knew who the hell the communists were. The communist underground politics also fostered the, nas- the nation that domestic communism had been fraught by secret means, or had been fought by secret means. The CIA adopted this notion of illegal illegality, sponsoring the National Student Association. This, this intervention in domestic politics was of course, a violation of the CIA charter and a menace to the integrity of the American democracy. But it was accepted. wittingly by some young liberal leaders of the National Student Association. Yeah, because college students are fucking idiots. <laughs> a popular phrase at the time was fight fire with fire. Communists secretly had legitimate had legitimized the idea. And that legitimizes a near quotes, by the way. The communist Penetration contributed to the decline of the American unions. When the Truman administration imposed, quote, loyal oaths to get communists out of the government, union leaders were trapped by John L. Lewis, the president of the coal mining union and literally violent foe of communists. So you mean a national fucking hero? Bet. Bet. Say less. but I'm going to go on and read more. A violent foe of communists in his own rank and file, registered loyal, loyalty oaths because he understood that there were that they would lead to the kind of political regularity that would cur- curb labor's movement ability to challenge business adversities. He proved to be right with the reality of domestic communism downplayed old political prejudices were passed on and unthinkably accepted and our damn it, damn it damn it okay in our own era liberals found ronald reagan's criticization of international communism as a quote evil empire cliche tasteless and embarrassing but they would have preferred a very very bad empire a wicked one or more naughty or merely more naughty as yet unexplored is the possibilities that certain features in the political culture and the American left are hand-me-downs from this period the elitism and dedicationism That so gal it that so gal its opponents may be a morphed version of the communist doctrine in vanguard leadership. The liberal. Let me grab my glasses. My eyes are starting to get tired. Opponents morph communist vanguard. The liberal preach and liberal preachment of government gigantuism, complex, bureaucracy, and central planning may also have taken root in the liberal administration of the Soviet of the Soviet system in the nineteen thirties. Oops, oops. An adequate history of McCarthy and Truman period one that gives popular attention to the class, ethnic, regular, ethnic, religious, and cultural mm-hmm. antagonisms of the of those times has not yet been written, but enough new information has come to light about the communists in the U.S. government that was that we may now say. That the point by point Joe McCarthy got it all wrong, and yet still came closer to the truth than those who ridiculed him came closer to the truth than either these presidential administrations or their private investigators ever could have gotten. Nicholas von Hoffman, a columnist for the New York for the New York Observer, is a frequent contributor to Outlook. And that is the end of this article. And this is from the Washington Post by Nicholas Von Hoffman in April 14th, 1996. So now I want to play to you, because it's very hard to find interviews with this man. I have scoured the web from Chrome to Bing to DuckDuckGo. He's a very influential man, but not a very easy man to track down Any interviews specifically on this topic about perhaps he was a little gun shy after the whole McCarthy incident went down but his name is Ilya Kazan he was a former member of the Communist Party of America the, the CPUSA and he testified and he was the one who gave over the name that led to the blacklisting in Hollywood and I go and find bits and pieces of various interviews with them, and this being one from the BBC.
0: I going to raise a certain period in your life, because very early on when you started out, you were a member of the Communist Party. Yeah. And then during the McCarthy era, in 1952, you were called to testify before right. the uh, House uh, Committee of American, Un-American Activities. Yeah. And you actually testified against a lot of people that you'd worked with, and named right. a lot of names. What, what did you hope to gain by that? Gain nothing, it's just the truth. The only thing I had to gain was the feeling that I was doing the right thing. I didn't have a damn thing to gain about it. It meant a lot to me to to say that... uh, But a lot of people didn't do that, did they? They would have protected people that they'd known. Well, they can do it. They they do what they thought was right. I did what I thought was right. Why did you choose that time when you were, in fact, called to testify to speak out? I mean, if you felt as you did, why didn't you say something before? You were, in fact, kicked out of the Communist Party. Were you, in a way, trying to get back... Not at all, no, because uh, not until I was actually in the position of making a choice which is essentially a very difficult choice, did I make it? You never know what you're going to do in those circumstances, Valerie, until you're confronted. You either must do this or that. There are choices in life, Valerie, that either way you go are painful. I didn't like to do it, but I thought when I thought about it very carefully, I thought it was the better of two uh, mean alternatives. Do you regret the decision now that you did that? No, I don't. I'm the opposite. uh, Since everything has been revealed since then, I feel that anyone who's gone through Czechoslovakia, Hungary, the... Nazi-Soviet pack and all the rest of it, who still goes on that way, uh, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't have sympathy. I think they should be brought up as I was to confront their past and say what they really think. You did in fact lose a lot of friends through that, and you were blacklisted for a time. Did it make it more difficult for you to work in Hollywood after it that? It did, because I had a certain notoriety. It did make it more difficult for me to work. But uh, I don't mind losing friends if it's in a good cause. And uh, I also gained a lot of friends. A lot of people admired what I did and said uh, it took courage. I think it took more courage to do what I did, and I got more disapproval than what uh, the rest of them did.
7: I have now just a small collection of articles I want to read to you, one being the blacklisting of Elia Kazan. And then I have an opinion piece from our friend over... uh, What's her fucking name? Ann Coulter. Not Laura Ingram, Ann Coulter. Have an opinion piece from her. Top of the article says: Do not pull your pants down and start masturbating. Okay, and why is at the top of your website? <laughs> Listen, if I want to whip my dick out on camera, I will do so. But the last articles I want to read are the Capitalism magazine's the blacklisting of Elliot Kazan, the Ames report of, or in, sorry, the Science Committee.gov's article. Communism, McCarthy Was Right, by John Basil Utley. And... I have a couple of federal documents here to go over from the ReaganFoundation.org. Before I get into that, let's hop over to a word from our sponsor for today's episode. Past me? Do that, Abreed. Welcome back. Now let's get into that article from Capitalism Magazine. The Blacklisting of Elia Kazan by Joseph Kellard, March 7, 1999, in the Politics section. When the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Science announced that it would honor film director Elia Kazan with a Lifetime Achievement Award, Hollywood liberal and leftist objected. The Committee Against Silence, the CAS, or CAS, a group of former blacklisted writers has planned a protest outside of the Oscar ceremony on March 21st, and has asked the Academy members to not applaud Mr. Kazan. Kazan. no, not, not Kazan. Sorry. When the Academy of Motion Pictures, when the Academy of Motion Pictures and Science announced that it would be honoring director. Elia Kazan, with a Lifetime Achievement Award. The Hollywood, Hollywood liberal leftist objected. The Committee Against Silence, the CAS, a group of former blacklisted writers, has planned a protest outside the Oscars ceremony on March 21st, 1999. And has asked the Academy members to not applaud Mr. Kazan as he is introduced. They find unforgivable that in a testimony during the House Committee of Un-American Activities, the HUAC hearing in 1952, 1950- Mr. Kazan, as they dramatize it, named names whoo, of people in the American movies and theater industries that he knew were members of the Communist Party as he was briefly a member himself, and thereby ruined their careers. A, quote, witch hunt against, quote, innocent victims is how his critics characterize the HUAC investigations of the communist infiltration in Hollywood, to which he was a friendly participant in and an informer. And similar names are what they called him. Furthermore... Bernard Gordon, Bernard, Go- Bernard Gordon, who formed the CAS, said Mr. Kazan's major achievement was quote was to contribute to one of the worst civil liberties violations in our country. End quote. What had Elliot Kazan essentially done to receive this opinion or to receive this opposition? Besides his testimony before the HUAC, he published a notice in the New York Times which stated the following. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Quote, They, the Communist Party, attempted to control throughout, control throughout and to suppress personal opinions. They tried to dictate personal conduct. They habitually distorted and disregarded and violated the truth. I was also held back by a piece of specious reasoning, of suspicious reasoning, which has silenced many liberals. It goes like this you may hate the communists, but you must not attack them or expose them, because if you do, you are attacking the right to uphold an unpopular opinion. And you are joining the people who attack civil liberties. We must not, we must never let communists get away with the pretense that they stand for. For the very reason, for the very things which they will kill their own countries. I am talking about free speech, a free press, the right of property, and all, and above all, individual rights. Liberals must speak out. An article... (laughs) Ah, an article by Elliot Kazan published. Ah, published in the New York Times. Instead, like the Communist Party they belonged to, the liberals, quote, innocent victims, still distort, disregard, and violate the truth as they they and their supporters still charge Elliot Kazan with the alleged crime of naming names. They still evade how he also named the facts that the Communist Party facts they refuse to acknowledge. In fact, the liberals, in fact, the liberties of the Hollywood Communist weren't violated by the HU by the HUAC, since as Americans they have the right to uphold and speak any ideas, be they those of our be those of our founding fathers, or of Karl Marx. They were investigated not because of the ideas they upheld, but because of their membership in the party. Directed and financed by the Soviet Union, which had a purpose, the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. Had it, had it been succe- succeeded, had it been succeeded? All liberties in America, including the freedom of thought, speech, would have ended these facts nullify the communist party as one of one as one worthy of constitutional protection and made it treasonous for an american to be a member of the party moreover the hollywood communists were members of a party banished to siberia or murdered Wait a minute. Moreover, the Hollywood Communists were members of a party that banished to Syria or murdered, or Siberia or murdered anyone who remotely threatens its powers. That supported and signed a non-aggression pact with the Nazi with Nazi Germany in nineteen thirty-nine to nineteen forty-one. That under Joseph Stalin's reign exterminated mil- exterminated millions of peasants in the Ukraine, and that ultimately committed what is arguably the bloodiest tyranny in the world's history. Its victims estimated to be at 20 to 40 million people, which discounts the tens of millions reduced to subhuman existence in Hollywood. A subhuman existence. The Hollywood Communists failed to speak when it came to telling the H the H U A C or their employers of their membership. As you remember, the first two of those trials I showed you, these people were just uncooperative. They would not talk. They always misinterpreted and misenacted the Fifth Amendment. And then the last two, Walt Disney and Kazan, were very cooperative individuals. <laughs> A revelation of which would have rightfully cost them their jobs. Instead, they used their free speech and right to deny their comrades in the Soviet and denied to their comrades in the Soviet Russia to insert into their movie scripts communist ideology that necessarily undercut American values, such as the right to one's property, that El Kazam. Ali, that Elia Kazan helped expose meant that they could no longer perpetrate fraud against their employers who had the right to blacklist them and refuse the, them the opportunity to propagate communism on their property or in their studios and movies. That he came to understand the evils of the Communist Party and its ideologies and confirmed the names of its American members who were loyal to falsehoods and murderers. Makes him not a traitorous, treacherous informer, but an individual dedicated to facts and truth. Elie Kazan should be applauded for such moral heroism and this is by Joseph Kellard a journalist for the for the New Yorker now this next article is from the sightings committee which is a government agency and this is from 2000 communism mccarthy was right by John Basil Utley published 2000 and this is the sightingscommittee.gov washington and this is beginning the article Washington although Joseph McCartney was one of the most demonized Americans and politi- demonized American politicians of the last century new information including half a century old FBI recordings of Soviet of the Soviet embassy conversations are showing that McCarthy was right in nearly all of his accusations quote with Joe McCarthy it was the losers who've would have written history, which condemns him, said Dylan Flynn, director of the Accuracy in Academics recent national conference on Joe McCarthy, published and broadcasted on C-SPAN. I love C-SPAN. Using new information obtained from studies of old Soviet files in Moscow and the now famous Venona intercepts, FBI recordings of Sov- of the Soviet embassy. Communications between 1944 and 1948. The recording, the record is showing that McCarthy was essentially right. He had many weaknesses, but almost every case he charged has now been proven correct. Whether it was stealing the atomic Soviet, whether it was stealing atomic secrets or influencing U.S. foreign policies, communists Communist victories in the 1940s were fed by an incredibly vast spy and influence network. The conference, a gathering of old McCarthy, McCarthyites and younger scholars uh, commemorated the senator's first speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, 50 years ago. Remind you, this was published in 2000. Now it's 70 years ago. 70 years ago, Goddamn! Talk to, go go to this nursing home, talk to some of these people, see what they remember. Ooh, hey, idea for a video in outside four walls. Mm. West Virginia 50 years ago, when he first held up his list of names of employees, of the State Department, whom he said were major security risks, McCarthy questioned how, in six short years after America's winning in World War II, the communist, the communist world, was so triumphant and had expanded to include eight hundred million people. Of the list, a key, can cons- a key one consisted of a hundred and eight names from the House of, House of a appropriations committee report of persons declared as security risks in the state department the lee list the house committee chairman had compared sorry had complained that state wasn't bothering to do anything about the suspects detailed details of the list and its accusations were presented at the conference Speakers detailed many of the cover-ups used to smear McCarthy. Veteran journalist and teacher Stan Evans, director of the National Journalism Center, sounds trustworthy, told of the Tidings Committee, which had investigated McCarthy's charges of communists in government. It reported, its report had exonerated every day among the accused. It stated categorically that there was no evidence against Owen Littimore, a man McCarthy said was a major figure in the communist conspiracy. Littimore had been Roosevelt's key advisor on China policy, yet Evans shows showed evidence for more than five thousand pages of FBI files on him. Files released only a few years ago to be published, although the White House had had, had had to access them. However, evidence before the committee showed that Lattimore had supported Soviet policy at every turn, even declaring that the Stalin purge trials in Russia, quote, sound like democracy to me. With then Vice President Henry Wallace in Russia, Lattimore compared concentration camps to the Tennessee Valley Authority. And later urged Washington to abandon China to communism and to withdraw from Japan, Korea. From Japan and Korea. FBI chief J. Edgar Hoover. Oh man, this fucking clown. J. Edgar Hoover. Who had fed information to McCarthy broke with him afterwards, fearing McCarthy would uh, would produce FBI sources of information for its criminal prosecutions. Although most of McCarthy's cases involve actual spies and security risks, the rarely important issue was that the communist influence over America's foreign policy, argued Evans. Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's closest advisor, who lived in the White House and had regular contact with the so- with Soviet intelligence, he helped bring about the disastrous Yalta and Potsdam Agreement, the Monogathau Plan to prevent German reconst- reconstitution and starve the Germans to make them desperate enough to go, to, go, to go communists was the product of Laughing Curry and Harry Dexter Harry Dexter White. At the Treasury Department the abandonment of China Kang Sheik by denying military support was the product of China hands led by John Stewart's service. John Patton Davies and Littimore Evans described other major spy networks in England, the Burghese MacLean group which infiltrated Washington as well as London. Reed Irving, chairman of Accuracy Media, told how he himself had been a leftist in his early career and had been against McCarthy, but McCarthy's speeches had made him think and start to read evidence that I had avoided, or quote, evidence that I had avoided, end quote. He described how all during his military career as a Marine officer, and later in Japan with the U.S. occupation, he had never hidden his leftist views, and later had even been offered a job at the CIA. Irving argued that real... Communist were only in the hundreds, but that thousands of leftists, such as he, all feared McCarthy, and wanted him discredited. Pulling all of pulling all the latest evidence together, was Luchian, speaker, professional author Herman. His new book, Joseph McCarthy: Reexamining the Life and Legacy of America's Most Hated Senator, and featured in the Saturday, Sunday New York Times magazine, shows the vindication of most of McCarthy's charges. Herman, who is also a coordinator of the Smithsonian's Western Heritage Program, said that the accuracy of McCarthy's charges was, quote, was no longer a matter of debate that was no longer a matter of debate, that they are now accepted as facts. However, the term McCarthyism still remains in languish. Asked whether McCarthy had understood all, all the forces arrayed against him, Herman said no, that McCarthy hadn't realized he'd been fighting against much of the Washington establishment, President Truman was fearful that exposures would reflect on key Democrat officials. Actually, uh, politically incorrect with Michael Malice and uh, Tom Woods has a great thing on on Truman and Hoover. It's worth checking out. Anyway, that exposure would reflect on key Democrat officials. He said big media and the academics and the academic world were very leftist, a heritage of the a heritage of the Depression and World War II. High government officials also feared investigations of their past appointments and associations with people who turned out to be communist sympathizers. Or communist outright. That was the reason McCarthy was so demonized, he said. Joe McCarthy had been a marine air gunner an amateur boxer, a, court, a county judge, and towards his end, under constant attack, he began to drink heavily. Herman said he certainly was over his head and his fall came about after sweeping attacks on the general marshals and the army. Senator Taft and other key supporters began to draw away from him. Sounds like a certain uh, vice president that backstabbed the last president. Mm. Mm. If Robert Kennedy, his, if Robert Kennedy, his contentment and well-connected co-counsel had stayed on, McCarthy might have behaved more carefully," said Herman, and argued with other co-counsel, Roy Cohen left Cohen in charge, but Cohen and the staffer David Schwein were uh, dis...er...disintagious for McCarthy. Still, McCarthy's original charges helped bring about Eisenhower's electoral victory and the defeat of the Democrats and key leftist Democratic Senators such as Tidings of Maryland... Four years after his original charges, Joe McCarthy was censured by the Senate and died shortly afterwards. There is more evidence to come, however. Herb Rohn, Herb Rohn Stein, another speaker who started out with the Old House Un-American Committee, Activities Committee, is writing a book about the Venona FBI intercepts and their links to other evidence from the comprehensive study of Russia or the comprehensive study in Russia of Soviet archives made available to Westerners since the fall of the communism. His book the Nora Secrets will be released by Regarni Gateway this fall. And that concludes this article. You know This episode is already going to be an hour and a half, or sorry, three and a half hours long. So what I will do instead is I will wrap this up here, because it is five in the fucking morning, I'd be up for work by noon. (laughs) Give me a subscribe, give me a like, give me a download, make it so I can do this all time, full time. Fuck. But anyway... I have a couple articles I'm going to link into the description of this episode. The UNZ Review, an alternative media section. This is a collection of The Workers' Red, which is a communist propaganda article at the time that only came out and So, again, this ties in the whole McCarthy trials, right? Because people accused this of being a communist front. And it only came out about 40 years later that it actually was. I'll be linking that. I'll be linking a, a Red Scare PDF from the archives of Ronald Reagan and the Red Scare from Ronald Reagan Foundation or the Reagan Foundation. It is 20 pages long. Perhaps I will read this in a different episode. I'll <laughs> make that my tomorrow episode. I'm not going to bother reading the Laura, the Ann Coulter. Uh, Oh, the Daily Work is the name of the article of, of the newspaper that was a Communist Front. Uh, I'm not going to bother reading the Ann Coulter article. It's going to be more of the same as everything I've already talked about. So I don't see much point into it. So I'll be linking those in the description box below. And while I'm at it, follow me on uh, Rumble. I'm, on the so on Rumble, I'm outside four walls. <laughs> The podcast is Inside Four Walls. I call it Inside Four Walls because I'm making a podcast in my bedroom, which has, you know, four walls. Outside Four Walls is when I go into the world and I do man on the street questionnaires or film rallies, events, shit like that. I actually have a good video up of a – I was at a Trump rally interviewing people there, asking them why they were there, you know, what, what keeps them fighting for what they believe in. And a lady pulls him, and starts blasting obnoxious, you know, that fuck Donald Trump song that goes on for like five minutes, has one lyric. Well, she shows up and starts harassing people, and uh, it kind of backfires. Great, I come off a little petulant in there, but I, I have no regrets about how I handled the situation. It made for good content. So you can follow me on Rumble. Uh, there is no other social media for this that I have. I'm still do the I'm going to still do the uh, oh here it goes a liberal woman and her father crash pro trump gathering but she leaves crying. It's an hour long video. And The video before that is 31 minutes. It's Trump supporters gathered to protest demanding a forensic audit Wednesday August 4th 2021. And then a surprise story that happened recently was a rescue 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 teams form at Lake Michigan. So for me, that one I was just at the beach. I keep my press credentials with me at all times because you know, you never know what's going to happen. But some kid supposedly got swept up in the undercurrent and washed out the shore, or washed out into the lake. And it's Lake Michigan is huge. It's like the second largest lake in the country, or second largest in Michigan. I don't know if it's large, second largest in the country. Well, it's a massive lake. Like you can't see. It looks like an ocean. You can't see anything. It just Land vanishes on both sides, and then you can't see across the water at all. Uh, anyway, they start for you, for like forming human search ropes. You know, people locking arms are going under the water and searching for shit. So you know that that happens. I also got a bunch of other videos. Uh, Chinese officials discuss how China will be taking will take Taiwan. Uh, I got propaganda that runs on Chinese television. Uploaded a uh, video of General Mark Milley, the wokest sack of shit in a suit. Uh, a video that I filmed, or I didn't film, but a video I've found in the archives, I should say. The cult of inter- intersectionality holds a public rally. Uh, Biden's remarks on vaccines. Biden admits to voter fraud. President Joe Biden remarks after private ma- meeting with Vladimir Putin. President Biden admits to his quid pro quo with Hunter Biden. I got a video of Hunter Biden smoking crack on a conference call on my Rumble. If you want to check that out, I got another uh, Trump supportive gather at Haggerty and Eight Mile to keep the MAGA movement alive. Uh, Michigan GOP Cadets for governor hold rally in Livonia, July twenty fifth, twenty twenty one. And then I'm posting some of my older footage that used to be on my Rumble, or sorry, on my Gab and Parlor. I don't know what happened to my Gab. I just no longer was able to log into it one day, and then you know what happened to Parlor. But uh. This video is titled A Gathering of Pro Trump Supporters and BLM Activists Gathered to Have a Peaceful but Heated Debate. And it is true. It's uh, six minutes and it's just like maybe 30 of our guys and 30 or so of like BLM and or exclusively BLM types. And they're just having multiple groups gathered up having different debates. No one threw hands. There's a few arguments that got really loud, but the people just kind of fucked off. So, yeah, I will wrap this episode of Inside Four Walls up here. Again, this is three and a half hours long, so I doubt very maybe we will make it this far. If you make it this far, I really appreciate you. Thank you for your time and listening to the show. I've been James Madison. This has been Inside Four Walls. I'm the only ANCAP on this side of the Great Divide. I hope to see you on the other side of that Great Divide.
5: Hello, I'm Rumble.
7: And I'm YouTube. YouTube, why are you dressed like that? Well, I've been seeing a lot of violations in the community lately, so I'm enforcing that. You mean like people not following your policies? Strike one! Uh, what if someone tells the truth, but it's labeled as misinformation? Strike two! Wow, what if I want to ask questions and have different opinions on things? Strike three! You're outta here! Now what? You may appeal to me in 30 days. Thankfully, we encourage diverse opinions and new ideas. Strike four! Dude, what? There's no such thing as four strikes. And I'm not even on your platform.
5: Strike five! All
7: right, I'm out. You're crazy. Later, dude.
5: Strike six!